Hell yeah. Hello everyone, this is Jose Herrera with the O3XX series. Today's special guest is Andrew Dabbs, our former commanding officer for Fox Company 28. Before reading his bio, I want to thank Andrew Dabbs for taking time out of his day to sit with two of his Marines to discuss the nuances of life and for stepping up to the plate to address some hard topics in this current climate. Andrew Dabbs was born in St. Louis, Missouri. He graduated from Lipscomb University in 1998 with a bachelor's in biblical studies. He was commissioned as a second lieutenant on August 10, 2001. He deployed to Iraq in 2003 and 2005 with 2nd Light Armored Reconnaissance Battalion and Helmand Province, Afghanistan in 2009 with 2nd Battalion, 8th Marines. He also served as a company commander at Infantry Training Battalion East. He EAS in 2011 and has worked in manufacturing and logistics. He currently lives in Muscle Shoals, Alabama with his family. We hope you enjoy this conversation. Just the fact that you guys cared so much, like, you know what I'm saying? Cause I told him like, I'll be honest with you. Like I think about that incident every single day, like, you know, not anymore, but literally like from the time up to pretty much when I had the talk with Tom, you know, you know what I'm saying? I was like, every day they'll flash through my mind. Like you, you catastrophically freaking fail, you, you know, uh, you, you know what I mean? You had an opportunity to lead men, men in war. And you weren't, you weren't worthy. You, you know what I'm saying? You didn't come up. I mean, there's no, it's kind of like a game. You know what I'm saying? At the end of the game, there's just a score. That's it. You can talk all about it. You can psychoanalyze it, but, but the numbers are the numbers and that's it, you know? So, uh, but I just want to just give a shout out to Tom, um, uh, you, you know, and Tom kind of opened my eyes, uh, you know, to, to some of these things, which I don't want to use as like an excuse or, or a cope, I guess is what the word people use now. But I was happy to learn there were other aspects other than Captain Dabbs failed, you know, you know, that there was more to it than that. Um, and the way and I'll get off my soapbox, uh, but the way I try to couch it in my mind when I look back at my Marine Corps career um, is that I had uh, I had superiors that were, you know, you know what I'm saying, trying to maximize me. Uh, and I had subordinates that supported me, you know, and not because I'm awesome and I'm Napoleon, but because of their own professionalism. You know what I'm saying? And um, and that's how I look at it, that I was a link in this chain. Sometimes the chain is very painful. You know what I'm saying? For the guys at the bottom and the guys over me, too. Uh, but, you know, that that's kind of how I, I choose to look at it. I, I try to go back and be like, where did I go wrong? Blah, blah, blah. Maybe sometimes to an obsessive degree uh, where you can get unhealthy with it. But I'll throw out I'm going to name drop here. Nietzsche. You know, I've started reading Nietzsche. I've, I've always associated Nietzsche with snotty teenage punk, you know, wannabe coffee shop types. Uh, so I kind of ignored him. And now I'm, I'm kind of at 44 years old, I'm discovering Nietzsche. And I don't agree with him on everything. Obviously, he's, uh, I go to church. He's very strongly, he didn't hate Christians, but, you know, his whole deal with God and all that. Um, but Nietzsche has a great line in uh, Thus Spoke Zarathustra. He says, the greatest enemy that you'll ever face is yourself. He said that you, that, that you lie in wait for yourself in forests and you lie in wait for yourself in caves. You're waiting to ambush yourself, to sabotage yourself, you know. And, uh, and that's kind of been the, the, the struggle, you know. And I'm not trying to be a downer. I'm trying to be, like, honest as to, to push toward the, the good conclusion you guys are, are pushing forward is that the, the, the default setting for human beings is to immediately assign blame. Like, it didn't go, it went south on me. It's his fault. It's his fault. 
It's his fault, blah, blah, blah. But then you realize when you sit down and believe me, I thought about this and I thought about other setbacks I've had in my life for quite a long time and dissected them. And like the main guy that's like the, the, the trigger man for the things that have gone wrong for me. There's a lot that's gone right, but the thing is me. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Even when, and this is in the civilian world when I got out, not, this is, not the military at all. But even when I got into the civilian world where it really is, pers- I mean, don't get me wrong, there's personal cutthroat politics in the Marines. But, but it's honestly, in my opinion, and you're free to disagree, uh, it's actually, it's pretty minimal. You, you know what I'm saying? The way that the evaluations and stuff work like that, you might work for a guy that hates you, but if you hang in there for a year, he's going to be gone or you're going to be gone. In the civilian world, you're dealing with a lot of the time, and this is just my experience, you're dealing with very petty, very small, very, like, and it's personal, you know, and uh, you, you know what I'm saying? And I had like some issues with those guys. So I look at it all, and again, I'll try to wrap up my statement here. It was that like, even when there was malicious actors and it wasn't my own inflexibility, you know, or something like that, say whatever what you want to say, I gave them the bullets. You, 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 know, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Uh, in the civilian world, like, you, you know what I mean? I, I didn't play the office politics smart enough. I thought office politics, I'm above that crap. No, 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 no. It, you don't have to play it, but you need to understand it. you like, if you want to survive, you know, and I came with a very, very uh, black and white, inflexible, uncompromising mindset. And so it's kind of like, you know, of like us in Vietnam fighting a gorilla, like we've got these huge forces moving here, moving there, and the NVA are just dancing all around us. That's when I was dealing with kind of the sea lawyers and, and uh, worm metrosexual scumbag HR people in the civilian world. Uh, that's, you know what I'm saying? That's what I was dealing with. So so the bottom line is, is that, and none of this is, it's not intended as masochism. It's not intended as like, oh, woe is me. I suck, blah, blah, blah. It's a, it's an honest assessment. You got to look like, like, stop, stop right there before you point any fingers. Like, like what was your role and what happened? Uh, and, and then, and then the whole thing is there's a great, and I'll get off my soapbox. There's a, one of my favorite, I read a lot. I, this is, I, I, I got all these books here to show everybody how smart I am. Uh, the uh, there's a great line in Heart of Darkness by uh, Joseph Conrad, which is of course what Apocalypse Now is based on. It's it's Heart of Darkness set in Vietnam, but there's a line there where he's talking about Kurtz, you know, and the whole idea of Kurtz is uh, is a very interesting idea for you if you have never read Heart of Darkness, you know. Uh, if you, I highly recommend it. But Kurtz is like he's a European guy. He goes to the Congo and he's a genius. He's actually, and I'm not trying to be political, but it actually says it. Like he's he he was. Uh, kind of a socialist, you know, like, like kind of a, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's our job as the European powers to bring the light of civilization, you know, to the, to the world. And then when the main character finds Kurtz, it's kind of like, if you've seen Apocalypse Now, you kind of know the story. He's gone insane, you know, and he set himself up as a god and he's like killing people and torturing, you know what I mean? And, uh, and it's just, and it's crazy. And so, but there's a line in there that I'm very much, not that I'm a Kurtz level figure, but that I really, that struck home where Marlowe says that when I look at Kurtz, here's a man with no, a, a genius with no fear, but he's paralyzed because he struggles blindly with himself, you know, that, that, you know what I'm saying? That that internal struggle between the, 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 not just the good and evil, but the effective and ineffective, the impotent and powerful parts of ourselves uh, cancel each other out to where like you gentlemen or myself, all of us have got talents. You, you know what I mean? God given things that, that can help everybody. But then, at least in my case, a lot of the time, 
they're 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 sabotaged by some other like lower part of myself that I'm fighting with. You, you see, which is a very is a fancy way of saying a very common experience. You know. So anyway, sorry about to ramble on that. All I can say, Reader's Digest, uh, it sucked, uh, but but there's no grudges. Um, you, you know what I'm saying? And uh, like you know. Uh, I, you know, I, I, I talked to, to actually, I'll, I'll be a little bit, a little bit blunder. After I kind of like chilled a little bit, I actually talked to Colonel Cabanis. Uh, and I just said, I apologize to you for putting you through that. You, you know what I'm saying? For, for you having to make, even may, have to make a decision like that, regardless of whatever the outcome was. You, you know what I'm saying? So like, so as your, as your subordinate who's here to like be, be beneath you and hold you up, I let you down. Um, and the other thing too, and I'll even be like more uh, uh, upfront. It's like, what would have happened if I hadn't gotten fired? You know what I'm saying? What would have happened if there was some like failure in myself that I didn't see? And as bad as that situation was, which is, it was bad, one of the worst of my life. If I had like gone over and through some chronic incompetence, had a man injured or killed, you know what I mean? Because I, I literally, I'm not being, I would either be dead where I'd be curled up, you know, with a bottle of Jack and a, a gutter somewhere. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, because it, it's 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 too horrifying to think about. Uh, you, you know, I mean the the idea of of of, of maiming and and and, and killing a, like a young life because you you weren't up to the challenge. You, you know, uh, so uh, you know the. Uh, like Cormac McCarthy says, you never know what worse luck your bad luck saved you from, you know. So anyway, that's it. I'm, uh, thank you for letting me ramble. Um, I hope know, that's not it. Questions, I'll be happy I, to answer them, but <laughs> there's no hard feelings. You know, no, I hope that's is. not it. And I really enjoyed what you I'm, were I'm just what what you were just going off of. I want to make a few points here to, you know, um, I think a lot of times with us, you know, even though that you didn't deploy with us as our company commander, um, we all still, that period of time, how much it, it means to all of us and meant to all of us, you know, we, we can't help but go back in our minds and think the same thing you said, like what, what would have happened if, you know, you did deploy as our company commander. And, you know, you just start, when you live in that period for so much of your life, like so much of your current existence is still you know, based around that four to eight year period, you know, mm -hmm. you, you like to run shit through in your head, you know, you ask questions, oh, this and that. And I don't know all the, the politics that you zeros, you know, go through and deal with. But to me, the measure of a, of a leader isn't about what's on paper or what boxes you have checked. Um, I think some people may look at, at other individuals that, you know, they have different leadership qualities and think, oh, you know, they'd be good to go. They, they can lead. But when someone stands in front of me and talks to me, usually that's all it takes. You know, there, there does need to be actions that follow those words, you know, but that, that is just spending time with someone. But when someone stands in front of me or a group of men and can, can touch certain individuals in that way, Mm -hmm. That's where confidence comes from. I don't care what your background was or what you did. Yeah, you know, there's proving grounds for all of it. You have to go through and do what you say you're going to do, especially like you say, in a war zone environment, you don't know how that's going to pan out. And guess yeah. what? You know, not not to I live with things every day and I'm not I'm not trying to, 
you know, make a sacrifice insignificant, but in war people die, you know, you know, we all experience that. And I know certain individuals that do care enough will hold those, those things, you know, close to them, but it's really just what happens What what I've talked to Jose about over the past little bit is, you know, we're doing this now we're reaching out, talking to guys. And, you know, when I, when I heard you were willing to come chat with us, I was like, this is what we need. You know, and I've said it to, I've said it to Grimmett. I've said it to, I'm like, what about all the staffing up? Where are they at? Do they not care about us? If you're my leader and you take me to combat, why, why is it, you know, other team leaders and squad leaders, why are they the only ones, you know, the, the entry level enlisted guys, why are they the only ones, you know, milling about still trying to figure out what the fuck the issues are. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I would like to see more of that. If you're supposed to be, you know, the figure I'm looking to come out of the woods, man, there's guys that need you and would love to hear from you. So, um, but yeah, don't, don't get back on the soapbox. I want to hear more about, you know, what, what you have to say, because that's what, be careful, man. That's what this is about. You know, that's what this is about. So, um, so yeah, that's just my little piece. That's something I wanted to get, you know, I know I, I rant to Jose a lot off, off mic about stuff and get crazy and he, you know, he hears me out and challenges some things I have to say, but you know, this is what it's all about. Open dialogue, yeah. talking about things, you know, not judging people. And like, you know, you're, you're, you don't need to hear this from me, but you're, you're a big man for, for saying, putting that the way you did and, and dealing with it the way you did. Cause I don't know if, if I could have, you know, if someone came in and told me, nope, you're, you know, you're getting pulled from your team or your squad. You can't hack it anymore. You know, mm-hmm. what, I would be tripping. I'd be like, what do you mean? You haven't even seen what I can do yet. So, you know, and I know that's, that, that is our, our part of being human. You know, you always want to look back and think how could it have been differently, even though you can't change what happened is the past, but um, yeah, just unfortunate. But like you said, and, and me and Jose touched on that before we do believe everything happens for a reason, whether they're good, bad, you know, so yeah, right on. Yeah, my wife, uh, I mean, my wife told me because like we've had a couple of incidents pop up and I don't want to get ahead of the game. I want to, you know, you set you set the the, the pace, uh, you know, but like we've had some incidents where I've, I've, guys have contacted me when they're in like a crisis, you know, and and I'm not making this about me. I'm just making this side comment because my wife like told me one day but it was like this, this is maybe the second or third time. And she said, look, she says, you think of yourself as a failure is that in that part of your life. She was like, but look at these, like, but, but when these guys like, are like, like they're calling you, they're not calling anybody else. So like, so, so she was like, I think really like a lot of this failure thing, she's like, it's all in your freaking head. You, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Because that's not, and again, this is not like me going rah, rah, me. Uh, but inside my own personal headspace, you know, it can get so negative that uh, that like comments, like observations like that really help. Because I don't know, I don't normally think think like that, make those associations. Um, 
and we can we can get into that in, in its time because uh, I got some stuff to say about that about like you know the the, the, the suicide crisis and all of that stuff. Um, but I'm, and, and maybe this comes across as, as a self-centered spin, but I don't mean it that way. Uh, but just the fact that she pointed that out, she was like, you know, like if you were like this terrible failure, nobody would be talking to you. You, you know what I'm saying? You'd be forgotten in the dustbin yesterday's news, but for whatever reason, you, you obviously made some kind of impression on people, you know, so freaking chill out, you know, you, you know what I'm saying? And I've got, that's one great thing. You know, I've got, I've, and I, I know guys have got lots of relationship problems. Uh, and, and I'm the greatest blessing in my life is my wife. Uh, you, know, you know what I'm saying? That's one thing where I can, I can say freaking I'm an unqualified success. Like, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, and I, and I really feel for guys that are in these like death struggles with these chicks, you know? Uh, and I'm very thankful to God that I've been, I've been spared that, you know, like whatever else has happened, I've, I've, I've got her as opposed to, I can't imagine being in the world that guys get that get, guys get in where this is your core, you know, and you got it, you got an enemy right there. I can't imagine that, you know? Um, but anyway, but yeah, one other thing I'll throw out and I'll freaking blow all en enlisted men here for a second, but you guys deserve it. Uh, the one, like the one thing about enlisted that you learn as an officer at any level, and it's one of the greatest things about enlisted men, uh, is that if, if, an, if an enlisted guy thinks that you'll get his back just a little bit, you, 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 know, you know what I'm saying? that guy will he'll move mountains for you uh enlisted guy the the enlisted ranks will like literally whatever they'll build noah's ark they'll massacre you know a, a taliban they'll they'll do anything you, you, you know what i'm saying if they just believe that, that you got that you know what i'm saying it's like from an officer perspective like you get you give them just this little tiny bit you, you know what i mean and that and they will take it and 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 go like like and move mountains you know um, and it's, it's very, uh, it's very moving, you know, you know, because like you're, you know, you like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you know, yourself, I know myself and you think like, like, am I, am I man? Like, look at the, like, am I up to this? You, you know what I'm saying? That's something all officers like from freaking Frederick the great all the way down to the crappiest second Lieutenant all think that like, like, am I, am I up to this? Like, look at these dudes. You, you, you know what I mean? Um, so I just want to throw that out is that, I, I never felt like I wasn't supported, uh, you, you know, by you guys. Uh, Grimmett was freaking awesome. Um, uh, you, you, you know, um, I can't I can't say enough like like good things. Uh, Fluker, I'll, I, you know, I'll be I'll, I'll be frank. I won't say I'll never say anything that would disparage. But like when I got fired, I like took Fluker aside and said, hey, look, I was like, I was like, let this be a lesson to you, young Skywalker, is what I said, you know. I said, bam, just like that, you're in charge. I said, just assume you're in charge for the duration. You, you, you know what I'm saying? And I said, I have total, complete confidence in you, 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 you know? And, uh, and like, so, and so go out there and, and, and run Fox, like until, you, you know what I'm saying? Until the battalion fixes this situation. So that's, uh, so like, you know what I'm saying? And if it was true, I wouldn't say it. I wouldn't put it out there, but I don't have to like obfuscate or lie. At no point did I ever feel like, you know, I'm fighting over here. And then I got my company. They're a, a barrel of snakes. Like, you know, at nobody, you, you know, no, 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 no. I, 
if there was something going on like like untoward, I was too thick to see it. All I saw was a bunch of pros that were going to do their job. Captain Dabs, yes. Captain Dabs, no. But the job is going to get done, you know, and that's what you want. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like uh, you, you want to know that the machine can function without without a head, you know. So anyway, I just thought, I mean that as a compliment uh, to, that, that uh, you know, you're you're both as individuals, but both as part of a, a organic part of the a Fox company as your CEO. Like I saw that. I appreciate it. When I still think back now, I still like, you know what I'm saying? I have, I've got nothing but like good, good things about that part of, of the relationship, you know? Um, so, and I just wanted to make that observation for enlisted in general, uh, cause it's one of the most powerful, uh, the officer enlisted relationship, even though people make fun of it, people like bust on it. And, and like, if you watch British movies, the officers are the heroes and you got the chip chip, you know, the trusty enlisted man and in American movies, the enlisted man's the hero and the officer's always a douchebag or he's incompetent. Uh, you know, but underneath all of that stuff, uh, the officer enlisted relationship is one of the most powerful interpersonal relationships in, in the human race, you know. Uh, and it's very complicated and very, very interesting from a psychological perspective. But, but one of those things is, is the, the whole, uh, like when I was in candidate school, a guy, you know, told, he told us one of the hats, he was like, let me tell you something. He's like, when you go out there and you lead Marines, he's like, if you make your Marines look good, they're going to make you look good. You know, he's like, it's as simple as that. Like he goes, if they know that you got your back, they'll do anything. If they don't think you got your back, they're still going to do their job, but there's not going to be any freaking gravy. You know, you know what I'm saying? They're going to do the job and then that's it. Like, you know, well, if you, if you take care of them, they'll do the job and freaking knock it out of the freaking fall apart. So anyway, I'm, I'm, I'm good. That's my, that's my, my beat. That's my, my, uh, oral, oral, uh, thing for the, en the enlisted of, of America. So now that's good to go. Um, you know, personally, I think, you know, besides you having an impact, uh, in the early developments of my, you know, young, and very short-lived Marine Corps experience. Uh, there's been one other uh, Marine Corps officer who's impacted me greatly. And uh, I wish, you know, I could sit down with him one day and, and have a conversation, but that was a uh, Lieutenant Colonel uh, John D. Harrell who took over as BC for our 2011 pump. Um, just an outstanding uh, Marine officer and just a, a great guy. And, um, it's very unfortunate, and I bring this back, you know, to the whole mental health thing. You know, back then, we didn't have trauma-informed practices. Everyone perceives, right, our percepts about specific things taking place. Uh, there's no specific guideline like there is now today where we can use certain things like tracking and resourcing to kind of ground us back that we can, so that we can use some type of tact so that the situation doesn't get any worse, or that we carry on uh, certain types of traumas that end up compounding and screwing us over later on. Yes. And I, I do feel, it's just amazing to me that for centuries we've had military studies, science on enhancing the individual soldier, enhancing the overall uh, unit. And one of the things that we've dropped the ball on in military science has been uh, this idea of how to 
cope with like the madness, right? The shell shocks that are either through training or through, you know, the actual chaos of combat. And now we kind of see it taking place, but I do believe that it's gotten a lot more procedural, more mechanical. And uh, the fact that you've been able to take uh, accountability and ownership for your past, and my past hasn't been the greatest. Um, you know, I've, I felt like I've failed before. And now that I have the opportunity to return back to the past, I'm able to make amends with myself and others. And, uh, you know, to, to tap into a little bit of more of the science stuff, there's a scientist who does work with precognition, right? Um, and she's come up with a method of how to heal uh, in the present um, by going by traversing uh, space time. And she calls it temperaceuticals. So there are ways that we can go back to the past, um, deliberate about it, dialogue about it, look into it and extrapolate the good parts from it. And that it allows us to help with the present where we can go ahead and say, I'm good with that. And mm -hmm. there's an amazing story where um, I think, uh, I can't remember, but the, I think the, the lady, it was a story where a lady had to make a choice. And as a result of that choice, um, someone died in a way she, her choice was, it was kind of like the trolley problem, right? It's like, if I don't do this, then all these other people are going to die. If I do this, this one person right. dies. Anyway, um, you know, the whole temperamental aspect of it was the person was able to go back to the past and then finally be able to understand it without, you know, uh, in a more of a, a renunciated way, like a more detached way. And then as a result of that process, right, going back um, and, you know, making amends with it, the future was a lot more better. Yeah. And on the bright side of things, um, recently there's been a, a, a recent publication about uh, future intelligence or future strategy, right? Looking into the future and how we perceive uh, ourselves, like where we're going to be in 10 years, where we're going to be in five years, and how might that allow us to make the present a lot more easier to traverse um, getting there. And again, you know, we're not taught this stuff where we go through life's uh, chaos, and then all of a sudden, you know, I don't know how it is, but gradually we begin to come out of that fog, and then boom, it hits us one day, and we end up figuring it out. Not as eloquent and articulate as some of these scientists, but more so just life experience in itself. And again, you know, I commend you for, for doing that, you know, uh, for, for just going through your life experience and then being able to be here with us. And, you know, it goes for all the other individuals out there that I wish they would reach out so that we can make amends with the past so that we can move forward. And, and one of the things I do believe wholeheartedly is that this community, especially the Marine Corps community, doesn't have a unified narrative. And if we don't have a unified narrative, then none of these issues are going to be resolved. We're just going to be, we're just going to contain it and contain it. Uh, kind of like we've contained, you know, our geopolitical issues, you know, within great power competition, all this other crap that's been taking place is that all we've done is contain it. And we just have more entropy. But before getting there, sir, uh, I want to go ahead and, and ask you, um, you know, about your humbled origins. How did you get into the Marine Corps? You know? Sure thing. Uh, yeah, basically, um, I, I didn't come from a, uh, a direct military tradition. Uh, my dad served in the uh, Navy Reserves, but this was like in the, like the, the, he never saw combat. He called himself a titless wave. He was like a stenographer, you know, 
<laughs> so anyway, uh, but uh, uncles on his side had all fought. And they were basically, and I don't want to chase this rabbit, but like there was like a, like a gigantic epochal socioeconomic shift after the war. When you look at um, my family on my father's side, they're all sharecroppers from Mississippi. They're literally, when you learn all those stories, which I could go on and on about, it's like a, a Faulkner novel. It's like, you know what I mean? Uh, it's a lot like Afghanistan. It's agrarian. It's violent. Uh, I had one uncle uh, that was, uh, one uncle of this group was murdered. Like, you know, and he basically fired a guy, kicked his, pardon my French, kicked his rear end and threw him out. And the guy just like walked, like walked right back in and shot him, you know, killed him. And I had another uncle that was like stabbed. You know, you know what I'm saying? It was a very, very violent territorial thing. Then here comes World War II, and literally, like all of these uncles, they take, get the GI Bill, bajoop, and they all get like freaking college degrees. And and this whole the 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 the, the Dabs clan uh, of of Mississippi sharecroppers moves up and becomes the the boomer middle class, you know, or my dad, you know, and all that stuff. Um, so they had a military background. My mom is uh, from she her maiden name is Schrumpf. She's a freaking German, like like uh, second generation German. And when you go to the, now this is Missouri now, the boot heel of Missouri is like a miniature Germany. You drive down, there's an American flag everywhere. All the mailboxes are like Schweinfurger, you know, Dinglehauser. Yeah, you know, you know what I mean? Like all of this German stuff, right? And uh, all of my uncles joined. I have one in the Navy, one in the Army. Uh, one in the Army who's freaking... Um, when I was a kid and I was doing stuff I shouldn't do, I was going, I was just rifling through crap at my grandma's house. I don't know why. And I actually found his distinguished flying cross citation. Oh, wow. uh, anyway, he was a 101st door gunner. Like, this is like Vietnam, like, like, you know, Vietnam, like cowboy stuff. He had like, like wax, like a mustache <laughs> with like the wax thing. He carried a Ruger Blackhawk, you know, the cowboy, the 357 Blackhawk and a chest rig. Actually, I'll tell this story very quickly because it's it's it'll, it's a freaking Audie Murphy thing, man. Uh, so he's like a like he got a bronze star for setting up a perimeter around a Huey that got shot down, and then he got the the DFC because they were coming in. You know, they would run you know once slick helicopters for the personnel and gunships to cover. So he's a door gunner on a gunship, and a round comes through, it hits him in the freaking jaw, goes around and exits out the back of his head. And on his bar downstairs, he's got the CVC helmet with the Cobra on the back with that friggin' bullet hole on the back and sitting on the Damn. bottom. And the, and the round that exited hit the crew chief and killed him. So like the friggin' bullet that hit my uncle killed this guy, you know. And it said like Sergeant Trump had to continually like wipe blood away from his face. So anyway, so they're able to suppress fire enough for the ships to lift off. But then somehow they have a mechanical thing, so they have to set down. So he according to his citation. So he suppresses all on his side, but he can't suppress on the other side. So he freaking unhooks the M60, hops out of the freaking helicopter, runs around, hoses those guys, and then jumps back up and then takes off. You know? Yes. Um, and so, and obviously, and the thing is like, the only reason I know that is because I was snooping around and going through their crap. He know, you know what I'm saying? Like he never was like, oh, let me tell you this story. The only thing I knew about it was he had that helmet with a freaking bullet hole in the back big friggin' exit hole, like about that big, you know? Uh, so we had that, uh, uh, there was a book, I wrote it down, Marine at War by Russell Davis. I, I, I read that when I was in uh, junior high school. 
That's interesting. He, uh, he, he was, I don't think he was in the exact same battalion, but he fought on Peleliu and Okinawa, just like Eugene Sledge, uh, which I don't, I'm not trying to insult you gentlemen. I'm making an assumption you read with the old breed of Peleliu and Okinawa, uh, which is one of the great war stories. Uh, I'm a member of a, like a that's, I'm going to get totally gay here. Uh, I'm a member of like a writer's, like a writer's group. I'm trying to do some writing in my spare time. And these guys are all like granola hippie types, you know, uh, artistic types. Uh, so I'm a fish out of water, you know, and that's the thing. People talk to me and then we talk about like all this hoity-toity pink in the air art and literature. And I'm like, wow. And then we either, and I'm not stupid. I'm not just going to volunteer crap. But if you ask me a question, I'll give you an honest answer. So then it veers into politics or life experience and then everything shuts down. They get silent and they recoil in horror, you know, because they thought that I, that they were talking to a, a friend. Hey, this guy, he knows all this like art and literature stuff. He's, he's all right. And then it's like, you know, well, like, you know, like, you know, you, Oh, you were in the military and I'm, I will go on a little thing here. Right. You know, there, there's the story there's like, okay. Uh, you, you know, I really support the military. They're a bunch of, of poor, uneducated people that didn't have a choice. They were used. They were manipulated. Uh, you know, the poor, the poor saps. You know what I'm saying? That's, why, that's how I'm pro-military. Actually, I, I will tell you this. And, uh, you, you know, you're cool if you say, whoa, hey, dad, it's like freaking, we only got a few minutes. Shut up. Uh, but literally, this is a classic example. When we were, this is the 2005 deployment with 2nd LAR going to Iraq. And we were in a holdover in Ireland, right? And so they don't let the Marines out of the little holding area. Officers too. We're just cooped up there until we freaking we get on the bird and go. Uh, and so there's and there's civilians there, and the civilians are like, "Wow, we really appreciate your service." Hey, thank you. No sweat. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Well, there's this dude, right? You know, fifty something, chilling, reading his newspaper. Anyway, and we had like a little altercation because he's like. He's like, you boys going to Iraq? I was like, yes, sir. He's like, you all tired of it yet? I was like, heck no. Yeah, I was like, this is what I signed up to do, man. I'm freaking pumped, you know? And then he like shot his paper. Like, you know, you know what I'm saying? And I, and I was like, like, is everything okay? I was like, you want to, I was like, tiss, you, tiss. you wanted me to like, like cry, right? You, you know what I mean? And tell you like, I'm, I'm, I'm just being used as a tool of, of the man. Is that what you wanted to hear? Sorry. You know, no, like, man, this is what I, like, like, I can't wait to get there, you know? So anyway, that's, you know, but, but so basically there's all this condescension, class warfare, stupid crap baked in uh, to, to a lot of this, this veteran support. Um, oh, but anyway, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought. Uh, but yeah, so, so uh, I joined the Marines and um, I was commissioned. And this is interesting, not because I chose it, but because, you know, Saudi Arabia chose it. Uh, I was commissioned uh, 10 August uh, 2001 was when I graduated officer candidate school. And I was in my company, just the, the generic holding company at the basic officers course. And that's when I, you, everybody, we all have our 9-11, our, our JFK moment, where were you, you know? And that was me, that was us watching it go down, right? We watched the second tower go, all this stuff. And then they're like, hey, everybody into the freaking theater, into, into the freaking base theater, and, you know? And then they gave us the big speech like, oh, you know, blah, 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 this, and all that. So my class was literally the last like 9-11 class. Like, you know what I'm saying? 
like like we all joined in in the that we we joined in the post 9-11 world and we're still in the training cycle excuse me pre 9-11 and we're in the training cycle post 9-11 which i don't have to tell you total change of the world not just because of the obvious human tragedy but this is and this is like maybe getting into your bailiwick a little bit like this is the beginning of the freaking global security state uh you, you, you know you know what i'm saying like all of this stuff um uh, uh the rise of neoconservatism um etc you know and my training when i look back like all of our training was all like we're still fighting the soviets it's really funny you know um and uh, you know like i went through training i went through ioc m16a2 with a pec 2 on it woo you know freaking state of the art right you know and it's really funny when you look actually the marine corps gazette they had a, they had a, they had two models they had a dude in oaf1 and a dude today and they're and you know oh, OAF yeah. one guy woodland camouflage target interceptor freaking tricolor camis m16 and now you got freaking the what is it in dune the, the solder con you got the freaking elite the elite robot shock troop you, you know what i mean where he's freaking kitted out he's got his freaking his freaking 10 inch and the suppressor and you know all that crap right so anyway there was so there was, there was a, a a an ideological kind of a philosophical a cultural definitely a technological uh like just gigantic shift and and i'm not trying to sound like the cynical old hippie like well yeah here come but it is true every like in the same in, in the this like all great things every tragedy every big thing it was immediately latched onto and exploited by all kinds of people you know uh, and i'm sure you know like you know because uh, uh, some people i talk to don't actually know that prior to 9 11 uh bin laden played the stock market uh al, al qaeda made bajillions of dollars on 9 11 9 12. and i and i don't know anything about stocks and i don't want to say a lot because i'll show my ignorance but i'm just saying but bin laden knew how to play it and he freaking dorked around with the stocks because he knew there was going to be a gigantic cataclysmic like murder like the next day you know and so and, and it all played so so bin laden got freaking uh he got freaking fat uh you know, you know what i mean off 9 11 in addition to the the his religious issues or whatever the whatever the f issues you know that he had so um but yeah basically uh yeah okay yeah the other thing real quick uh wrote down richard marcinko he just died yeah um and like richard marcinko yeah a lot of hyperbole he has his critics uh but all i'll say is when you're 21 years old 20 years old and you're reading rogue warrior and red cell i didn't read all of his books i read Red Cell, Green Team, and the original Rogue Warrior. But when you're 20 years like like this is some like swashbuckling stuff. Because I mean, I was a history nerd, you know, I knew all about the history of, of war, World War II. I was a gun nut. But the the Marine at War book showed like this is fun. Like this is funny. Marcinko's hilarious. The stuff that they're doing is freaking hilarious, you know. Uh it's not just like gloom and doom and you, you know, uh whatever, like all quiet on the Western Front, you know or is this this like this soulless nihilistic experience that nothing good comes of it and blah 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 and you can say whatever you want about marcinko that he, he was you know whatever but he inspired me uh and when i'm 20 years old i don't know i don't know anything you know i don't know that he's like kind of full of crap and you, you know likes to hear himself talk all i know is like this guy's a badass you know and i want to be a badass and i don't want to be and i know you'll know exactly what i'm talking about I don't want to be one of those guys like, oh, you served in the military? Oh, yeah, I was in the Marines. Yeah. You know, I thought about joining one time. I was going to join <laughs> yeah. one time. 
And I got, you know, there's nothing like that. I don't think anything bad about that. But all I can say is like, well, you know what, dude, I was almost going to join one time and I did, you know, uh, you know, you know what I mean? And, 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 and that's honestly what like separates, uh, like literally, I'm going to use a little foul language, please forgive me, but like the shittiest, dumbest, like douchebaggiest freaking Marine. Like, you know, the guy that's just like, like freaking, unless he commits murder or rape or something, the guy that's like, ad set, get him out of here. He's better than 95% of those guys because he actually, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Because yeah. he did it. Yeah, he freaking effed it all up, but he did it. Did you go through Paris Island? No, I don't think so. Did you go to San Diego? No, I don't think so. Did you go to Canada? Did you go, did you go to Quantico? Did you freeze your freaking nuts off at Quantico? No, I don't think so. You know, so you know, I, I don't think I'll, I don't think that vitriolically, when I encounter these people, but at the same time, it underlines how, how people are just like, yeah, shoulda, woulda, coulda, but it takes a, and, and I know I'm waving the flag, but it's true. It takes a special person to join the military, but it's like, look, look at, look at us here. Like you got a white guy, you got a Hispanic guy, you got another white guy, you got, you know, I mean, I'm not a rich person, nor was I ever, uh, you know, like middle-class, you know, uh, but wherever you like some, there was some weirdo, like, and this is getting into your bailiwick, which is like way out of my league, like brain chemistry, synapses, some little spark fired from ganglion to ganglion. And it made us all want to be like, no, 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 no. I want to join the Marines, you know, like what, you know what I'm saying? And I don't know what that something is, but it's something that connects everybody, you know? Uh, and when you meet these kind of sad sack tool shed type people, uh, it really like, you know what I'm saying? You can, it, you can see the difference. You're just like, yeah, yeah. It, you know, you, you, you could have done it and maybe you would have rocked out. Maybe you would have been a great squad leader. Maybe you would have been a terrific battalion commander, but we'll never know, you know, because you took the, 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 the freaking well-beaten path, you know? So, and this is not just like empty chest thumping. Uh, this is something that I think this is a tool that can be used, it can be used in this whole suicide thing. It can be used uh, in this like this uh, meta meta cultural thing. Veterans, who are we? What is our point? What's going on? You know. And you and me, uh, Jose, we were talking last time. I don't know if you remember. We were talking about the Comanches and the Vikings, like you know. And and I'm and this is not a judgmental statement. It's a rhetorical statement. Did the Comanches have PTSD? You know. Did the did, did the Vikings have PTSD? And, and, and maybe they did, but I guarantee you it, didn't, it doesn't look like our PTSD, you know, because, because ours is, is, a, is a growth of our culture, like good and bad. Um, so, so anyway, it sounds like I'm like waving the flag, but I really genuinely believe that this kind of esprit de corps, this kind of uh, like this culture within a culture, and I will get a little bit negative here for a second, but I'm amazed the Marine Corps is still here, you know, and uh, and and I'm I don't want to get into politics. I'm not I'm 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 not here to to engage in our polarized environment, but I don't think it's a loaded statement to say that our institutions have a culture, you know, and that culture is diametrically opposed to everything in the Marine culture. The Marine culture is violent. It's aggressive. It's male oriented. It's performance oriented. It's patriarchal. You, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? It's everything they hate. And I think the yeah. only reason they haven't gotten rid of it is they just haven't, they don't even know what a freaking Marine is. Oh, the army guys or something like that. But, um, so, uh, 
and, I, and I've been reading, and I'm, it sounds like I'm rambling, but this is my last point. I know where I'm going with this. I've been reading a lot about Weimar Germany. Um, now, one, yeah. one thing about, about Weimar, when you actually kind of dig into it, we're nowhere close to Weimar. You know, uh, we still have a very strong central government. Like Weimar, you had like cities rebelling and forming Soviet republics, cities. You had hundreds of armed, like armed up, uh, mostly Navy from the German Navy, like patrolling the streets, you know. And then you had the right wing Freikorps, which, which, uh, and I'm not going to deep dive into all of this stuff, but the Freikorps were not Nazis. And, and in fact, uh, they, the, the big names, there was like a, there was a cultural struggle in Germany within the German right. And there were all these different, there was a conservative revolution, there was Oswald Spengler, there was Ernst Junger, some very amazing people that are like this, you can't get, what's cooler than a freaking World War II German badass that hates Nazis? You, you, know, you know what I'm saying? Like that has none of this identitarian racist wacko stuff. It's all the really cool stuff, you know, and none of the bad stuff. Well, they were there, but they lost. They lost that cultural and political struggle and the Nazis won. Um, but I say all that to say is that within these groups, and I mean all of them, even like the bad ones, and, and I'm, I'm not gonna, I'm, I'm not any kind of weirdo Nazi type person, uh, but like the SA, you know, the, the stormtroopers, that was a veteran organization. That, that, that was a bunch of vets getting together, getting drunk uh, and beating the crap out of people. Uh, the Fry Corps was more of a, of a paramilitary organization that they fought. They basically wiped out and they got a cart. They got cart blanched from the government because the government was too weak to put down these uprisings. So the Fry Corps was all these World War One vets. And they actually went fought all the way into Lithuania and Latvia because they said, hey, if you guys come and beat our communists, you can live here, you know. Um, uh, so, but all of these groups, one at a time, collapsed in the face of, of Nazism. But where it's important, the reason I bring it up is, and I'm not saying, hey, let's do this. No, 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 no. I'm not saying anything that we should adopt the, the politics, nor could we. But this gave a fusion to the completely dispossessed, poor veteran community of Germany. They just lost the war. They got, the way they looked at it, they totally got screwed by their, by their own government. Uh, by, and by Kaiser Wilhelm, uh, it, you know, their, their economy, you know, you guys know this stuff. You guys are smart. The whole wheel, the wheelbarrow full of money so I can buy some bread. Like, so they come in and everything is just in complete shambles. And so what they did was they all became essentially either paramilitary troops or, or politicized uh, skull crushers. Uh, but whatever they did, they were all together drinking and hanging out. And that was sort of their post-war therapy, you know? So, uh, and I said it once, I'll just say it again in case anybody hears this and it's like, what the F is he talking about? I'm just talking about it as a model, that's all. I'm just looking at history and trying to find what did veterans do? And this is one thing. Uh, and I can say this without immediately someone hearing me and then running off and being a Nazi, please, let's, let's be grownups, you know? Um, so, it really fascinates me because people throw Weimar around like, oh, man, it's Weimar. No, no, it might be Weimar in 10 years, but we, we still have it pretty good. But what interested me about it was what did the veterans do? What did all of these disaffected men do? You know, and they did. Uh, uh, the adrenaline junkies all went to the Fry Corps. Uh, I'm reading a book right now by a guy that fought in the Fry Corps. And, and, he, and uh, but he's got a great passage where he said, like, where in all of this, like, where was Germany? He said, we thought Germany was in the war, but we lost the war. 
And then we thought Germany was in the state and the state screwed us. And we thought Germany was in the, the people, but the pe all the people care is about getting their next sandwich. They don't give a crap. And then he has this very powerful, like, you know, Germany is wherever swords are unsheathed, you know, in her name, wherever armed enemies might be. You know what I mean? This is uber patriotic stuff, but it's very interesting because these were men, and this is where I think it's relevant. It's why I mention it, not because I'm trying to be a history professor, but these were men in the midst of a, of a social and cultural collapse. Uh, mm. And what and what did they do? You know, and I'm not saying we should do what they did, but it can't hurt to look at it. And, and I will say the last thing, and I know this will connect with you guys, what I do not want and what, what will make me like tune out of all media is for veterans to become another sad sack, woe is me, pathetic victim group. And you know what I'm saying? What you see at an individual level, like Laney posted that this is a while back, but remember the dude like, don't put fireworks up. They bring on the PTSD. <laughs> and Laney had that little meme about, hey, Low, I, fireworks remind me of combat. I like combat. So freaking put all the, use all the fireworks that you want. You know what I mean? Like kind of a shot back at this, this stuff. Because, uh, and again, without getting political, victimization is how you get ahead now. Like, you know, the victim Olympics. Oh, well, well I'm a this. Oh, well, I'm a paraplegic uh, uh, Trinidadian, uh, you know, whatever. Oh, oh man, you got me beat, you know. Um, and the way you get ahead and the way you get pats on the head and the way you get power really is to be victims. And that is something that should be beneath all of us. It should be beneath the, the lowest, most insignificant dude that served. Um, and, and one of my fears is, is that, that we might shift that way, that where you have something that's healthy, that's therapeutic, that's going somewhere, that's constructive. And it's, you're dealing with men, all of us, you guys, me, we're all damaged. I mean, we just are, period, just like our grandparents were, you know. And now we're trying to repair that damage for ourselves and other people. But it's but the but the key is not to be seduced by by stepping into this world of, of pathetic, um, uh, you know what I mean, like like uh, vic victim game and one-upmanship. So anyway, um, but yeah, that's pretty much it. That's my family. That's uh, kind of like why I joined. Uh, that was sort of the the uh, area in which I joined the 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 the, the uh, hinge point between pre and post 9/11. Um, yeah. So what, 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 what else, what, what else you got, man? That was, no, just wanna, that was yeah. great. Yeah. I was going to say, um, this is something I've been saying for a very long time, man. Like when I got out in 2012, it's like everyone began to categorize me and my experience. Like, oh, you have a moral injury. Oh, you have PTSD. Oh, you have this. Oh, you have this. Oh, you have this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then something is like, no. Like something's off here. And it took me a very long time to realize that. And it took me down, you know, the philosophy and religion route. And Alistair McIntyre has kind of been a huge impact on my life um, in terms of just understanding this idea of emotivism or cultural relativism, right? Um, cultural relativism. We, we want to value each other's statements, opinions, and, and moral claims. However, it just becomes one-dimensional and just leads to philopicism. So there's just kind of this illusion that it's very democratic and it's really not. Emotivism is just simply, you know, we live in this incommensurable world. There are no standards. Um, our virtue ethical systems or frameworks from warrior societies don't meet with the current mainstream society. And as a result of it, there's this clash of identity and role. And then you have like this whole metaphysical structure that's been completely eradicated 
and then it leads to the detriments of what we see today, right? So we either follow self-preservation, which is to go with the mainstream, or we check out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, a lot of it's a collapse of ritual. And uh, what Rene Girard talked about, the scapegoat mechanism, right? We point fingers at everyone, except looking at ourselves or looking at the past. And uh, those are all solid points. Um, and I've, you know, I've, I've kind of looked into the whole Weimar thing, but haven't dissected it. I, I feel that I've still made it in terms of like my re- my reading because I'm so into this other project that I'm, you know, it's just consumed me. And uh, so, no, I understand that. I understand some of those points that you made and I appreciate that. You were going to say something, Polly? No, I was just, <clears throat> yeah, I, re- I really liked a lot of the points you said. I w- I'm going to have to go back and listen to it again, but just to bring up a couple of things that, I, you know, are, are personal with me, you know, the, the comment you made about the whole, we've all experienced, you know, the guy saying, well, I was going to join with this and that, you know, and this is something big with Jose, he, you know, the esprit de corps, you know, honor, courage, commitment, JJ did tie buckle, you know, leadership traits and principles. Where is that now? Where, why isn't that instilled in, in civilians, you know, mm-hmm. because, to to touch on that, the difference between a, a a citizen that joins the military, which I'm going to touch into that too, is that D is decisiveness, right? One of the big mm-hmm. things that I, I remember learning as a young Marine was, you know, make the decision. The only thing worse than making a bad decision is making no decision at all, right? That's something I've carried, you know, into my into my life after service is I, it, people that are indecisive, really, they, they get to me, you know, there's no, there's no time to, I don't want to say there's no time to waste, but just, just make the call, just make a decision and push through your service member, your Marine, no matter what you think of him, he made a decision to dedicate his life to something. And I think being in that organization and seeing that, we can all relate to that. If I go up to you on the street and you're like, Hey, I was a Marine. I at least know that I know without knowing what you did. I know you, you did, excuse me. I know you dedicated yourself to something and that's commendable. That's respectable. And it should be, you know, across the board, not just from Marines or soldiers or Mm -hmm. or anything else. Like you, you, you really made the decision to do something and whatever the reason is, I know several people, you know, in my peer group Marines that they joined the Marine Corps because they literally had nothing else. And, you know, what, however the media wants to spin it or whatever your, your hipster hippies want to say, Oh, you know, you, you got brainwashed. You're an idiot. I'm smarter than you because I didn't let the government waste my life or ruin my life. Like, Hey, guess what, dude? I know a ton of people where that's all they had. I knew a guy that lived in Maine that drew that rode four hours on a quad to his recruiter station because he was in BFE nowhere. You know, do you think that he was brainwashed? He had nothing like you making that statement about someone else for making the decision, what they do. That's that's privilege. You're privileged. Oh yeah. Big time. If you're going to sit here and cast, you know, whatever, whatever views you have on something, because they were willing to make a decision. No, it's more likely 
that when you when you approach someone that tells you, hey, look, I, I was willing to put it all on the line for a cause. What have you done? That's an attack on them. That's you attacking their ego without actually really doing anything. Just saying, hey, this is me. I'm not trying to rub anything in your face. And another point is that, you know, I've said this to Herrera a lot, you know, to me, it, it doesn't matter. The measure of a man isn't about what you've done. It's about what you, you were willing to do. If you, if you, if you can at least show me that I'll respect you. Not that you need my respect, but you know, people a lot of times want to compare what they do and what they've done. And it's not, that's not what it's about. It's about what you were willing to do and what you did to show what you were willing to do, not your actions on the target. Yeah, of course that can, you know, go one way or the other, but um, but yeah, I really think that's, that's got to change. That's got to stop too. We got to stop bashing each other and hating on each other for what, you know, what we couldn't necessarily control. Um, so yeah, but that's just me going on my rant for a little bit, you know, and also that, that kind of ties into me to what, what I'm fearful for. We can't, we can't start putting, we can't keep putting each other in these boxes, right. To where, you know, I feel like I'm concerned moving forward about, you know, our military as a whole and how, oh, yeah. how the youth are viewing it, you know, and even how I'm viewing it right now, I'm like, man, this is kind of, I never, you know, silly me, but I never really saw it going this way. I, I, I don't know how people would want. And I hate even saying that, like how people would want to serve their country at this point, but it has to keep happening. We can't, I think, I think there's human traits to wanting to see what, what you have to offer, right? We can't wash that out of ourselves. We have to keep trying to see, you know, we got to keep trailblazing. We got to keep figuring this out no matter what the challenge is. And I don't want to, I don't want to just bash, you know, our country and, and the military to the point where anyone that's, you know, a young adult is just like, why would I want to do that? Why would I want to, right. serve? you know, um, you need to serve, you need to figure out what you're made of. Like, that was a big thing for me on why I joined. It wasn't, you know, kind of like you, I'm like, man, Marines are badass. Like what I'm looking at, you know, books and stuff, early invasion stuff. And I'm seeing all these guys cross that bridge. And I'm just like, that's, you know, that's hard. I want to do that. You know, I'm running PFTs four times a week before I go to boot camp, like just trying to be that guy. Mm -hmm. And you know how they they just make everything look so amazing, you know, in in pictures, and then knowing being downrange and then realizing how disgusting and filthy your life is. You're like, I still cherished it and loved it, but I'm like, this isn't what the pictures were were selling <laughs> me, you know. But yeah, it's false advertising, right? Right. But, you know, I'm grateful for it. I, you know, I went in with an open, open mind, open attitude. It was my choice. I didn't need it. Like some guys needed it to change their life or get money for schooling or whatever. Cause they had nothing else, but you know, we all had our reasons. There's no, you know, your writing club. That's funny too. You, you talked about that. Your, your writing club that how, you know, you can, you're tolerating this whole group of individuals that you have extremely different viewpoints with them probably but you know you're just there you're enjoying it for the reasons you are and you know contributing to this cause that's going on but then as soon as you bring up who you are people get offended by it and you're like wait a second 
is this not what diversity is, right? Shouldn't, right. We, shouldn't we all be able to tolerate each other? But, you know, I'm tolerating you and I might have extremely different views on things than you, but I, we can still get along, right? But as soon as I bring up, you know, how I feel, everybody gets their panties in a bunch and it's like, nah, this is not the way. You know, don't don't ask me a question and then be afraid of what the answer is going to be. So, I don't know, just uh, just my observations there on some of the things you brought up, and I and I think these are things that need to be discussed. We need to stop being so, I don't want to say sensitive, because there are, you know, you talk about don't put firework signs up. I would never do that. But guess what? Sometimes when I hear somebody rip off a thousand pack of of fireworks in the distance i'm like that sounds like a machine gun and it makes the hair raise on my neck yeah. and, but i love it though you know it, it might throw me off it might put me in a weird headspace but i would never i'm grateful for it you know that that means i'm still alive and i'm still processing and experiencing life um so i'm working things are still working for me but but yeah you can't like you said that the, the the victimhood and the woe is me mentality, especially from strong men or who at one time are considered to be strong men. Don't lose that. Don't, don't give up that fight, you know, keep fighting it. Shouldn't life shouldn't be easy. It should be hard every step of the way. Yep. If it's, if it gets, if it gets to the point where you're just cozy and comfy, make it hard change, do something to make it hard still. Um, but yeah, so so go no, so, right sir, so going back so after after ocs where did you go next okay um so i went through candidate school then i went through uh six months of the basic officers course that all lieutenants do and it's kind of like mct on steroids so like like a you know a public affairs officer can freaking lead a squad you know that type of thing then i went to the infantry officers course um which was pretty freaking awesome and pretty freaking hard. And, um, and then I went to uh, second light armor reconnaissance battalion. And it's funny how it real quick that like how that played, because I had a very serious relationship going on uh, with the girl in Fredericksburg who ended up being my wife, who's right in there. And, uh, and so like, I was going to be stationed at first LAR. And there was this dude who was like from Fresno or something. He was going to be stationed in second. So me and him, told, we didn't tell anybody. We just walked down to the monitor like, hey, man, can you like freaking swap us out? Yeah, sure. No sweat. Just like that. You know, so I went to second LAR so I could be around my girl and he could go to first anyway. And then the, they, they dropped the hammer on us for that. And they made like a new rule that you can't talk to the monitor anymore. Like, you know, unless you like talk to the, you know, to the S1 for blah, blah, blah. But, um, but yeah, in LAR, I was in, um, I was in h &S company. I was in Delta company, uh, first platoon commander, Delta, Delta company, weapons platoon commander, uh, echo. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm getting a little Alzheimer's kicking in a little, uh, either, either Charlie or, or, uh, echo, but a uh, weapons platoon commander. Uh, then I was the h &S executive officer. And then that, that was it. So, um, but that, that was LAR, LAR was like really like as a, as an officer, like set, being a Lieutenant is where you like are 
like in the in the freaking ditches uh you know slinging lead that's where i got shot at you, you know what i'm saying like generally speaking you know a captain unless like the crap has really hit the fan is not going to get like in, in you know be taking taking rounds and slinging lead you know that's not that's not his job at that point you know uh, but as a second lieutenant um that's where like i was in combat uh and the really cool thing about Iraq in 03 was it was an invasion. There were no fobs. Every night, you know, I'd sleep. We all had different sleeping areas on the vehicle. So you could go, you knew exactly where everybody was if you had to get them in the middle of the night. And, uh, you know, and like every night I freaking lay down in the sand next to the left front tire, you know, take my boots off, take my pistol out, just set it right there, freaking sleep, you know, until it was my turn to do turret watch. It, like as a, just as a personal experience, like the invasion of Iraq was like my war. That was my war, you know. Um, and people bust on second lieutenants, and it really kind of being a second lieutenant really blows, you know, uh, because underneath all of the the mockery that you endure from everybody, your peers, you know, your superiors, uh, you know, respectfully from you know, like even if you're even if your guys don't like, they're not going to come up and say like, hey, screw you, you suck. Uh, but you know, they think it, you, you know what I mean? Uh, so until you prove yourself, you know, and, uh, but second lieutenants are given an immense amount of responsibility. Uh, and, and I will say like the training I received from the Marine Corps was first rate, like, like, you know what I'm saying in, in terms of like book, book learning, you know, as much as you can learn in a classroom or in a field X, like you're, you're good. Like, I mean, really it was, it was outstanding, uh, training. Um, but, uh, and, and then, but then there's all the, the intangibles that you just have to learn, you know, uh, but you, uh, but you all do it underneath the, 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 the cultural, uh, construct of uh, that second lieutenants are like peach fuzz, uh, you know, you know, you know what I mean? Like, like doofuses, uh, that they're either like pansies or they're, they're rah, rah, like offensive linemen that are going to prove themselves and get everybody killed. Like all of these like tropes, you know, these, these cultural tropes. And I'm not saying that the tropes are always wrong, but I'm just saying that, you know, like I was trying to, I was trying to pump up the enlist. I'm going to throw one out there for all the second lieutenants of the world, you know? Um, so, but that was, that was a key experience. Uh, we, you slept in the vehicle, you crapped on the side of the road. Uh, like, you know, I, I'm a big fan of that movie Fury. If you haven't seen Fury, oh, love uh, it. because and I wasn't in tanks, but the movie, even though it's it's not perfect, it's not a masterpiece, but it really does capture when you're living in a freaking tin can with a bunch of dudes. Like it, it really captures that relationship, you know. And to this day, I might not be able to remember everybody that was in my platoon, but I remember everything about those dudes that I spent like almost like six months with living inside a freaking LAV, you know. So uh, from from LAR and and just and stop me at any point, but. I went to my B billet was at School of Infantry East. Uh, I started out as the weapons instructor group OIC. Uh, then I became uh, a company commander, uh, Alpha Company. Um, anyway, that's kind of funny. I came in, they were like, you know, your congratulations, you got broke back Alpha uh, because we had this uh, freaking dude that was like sneaking through the barracks and like sucking on guys' toes. He would like suck on their oh, toes. Yeah. <laughs> So they freaking like sep separated him for psych, but the, but the, 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 that was a great job. 
the dudes, my combat instructors, they most of them had actually been in uh, Phantom Fury 2. You know, they've been in Fallujah in 04. Um, and watching them teach guys mouth was awesome. I would just sit in the back and just wa watch them work their magic because they know they know all those tricks. They know about a machine gun that's in the living room firing down the hall and out the, out the street. You know, they know all that stuff. What, what time uh, was that, so then sir? I, Sir, what oh, time hang on was a it? second, man. Go ahead. What was the what time were you what time were you there as a company commander, SY East? Uh it would be uh that was 2005 to 2008. Okay. Was well, that, was the block. I got out of LAR in 05. Yeah, and that uh, that would have been the time frame most of us East East Coast boys came through there then. You know, that were in two eight anyway. Uh, yep. Small world. I was like, if you were in, like, I was in the Alpha Company CO, and you guys might have been there, and I was just there as the Wig OIC, yeah, which was basically a glorified RSO OIC, essentially. You know, it sounds just, like a cool job, and I was all jazzed up, and I'm like, oh, I'm just a permanent OIC, ROIC, yay, great, you know. Yeah, I was but, actually, I was Charlie Company, but it would have been early 07, but I just remember, like, all of those all of our instructors, like you said, had been downrange. They were, they were amped up. They were not, you know, they knew, they knew most likely where a lot of us were going to end up going and they were not taking any crap from anybody mm -hmm. and grateful for it. But, but yeah, no, that was interesting. I did not know you, you did time there when probably most of the, most of two, eight would have gone through the East coast guys anyways, when, when you were there. So. I had one instructor that he had, uh, he got like, you know what I'm saying? You learn to don't judge. It's, it's, you know what I'm saying? Like, like, look, look at the whole guy, but we had one guy, I won't name him, but uh, he was like freaking super moto. He had bought like a cut V like a Chevy blazer and had re and like, and refurbed it like a cut V like, you know, with a fake serial number. Uh, you, you know what I mean? And, all, and that's what, that was his, his ride was a freaking, uh, like the, the like a range control thing well anyway he made he told the guy to clean the thing up and the guy mouthed off so he like made the guy uh put all the dust in the dust pan actually i can make i can make a point out of this random story and he made the guy eat it he made he made him eat all of the dust from the <laughs> and he got in big trouble and they were like so they're like they moved him they're like hey joe we're gonna move joe bob to your your company i'm like freaking a i'd love to have that guy you know and and i'm going somewhere with this so like so i bring him in right out of the gate hey man like like you're under a cloud right now but like you know you went wrong because you went too far you, you know so just none of that dustpan stuff in, in alpha company okay like just just as long as you like don't freaking go go that far I'm, I'm down with you like i'm impressed by you i want you to freaking like whip these guys, you, you know, you know what I mean, into shape. And he was fine because one thing that I will point out as a general criticism, uh, and I think it's in, it's increasing and increasing, is is just freaking wigging out over stuff. Um, what precipitated my conversation offline with Tom was when those dudes pissed on those bodies, you know, mm, and I yeah. was just like, geez, like, yeah, pissing on a corpse is not cool. But I mean, I'm like in war, in, in the grand spectrum of everything in war, pissing on a, a body is not that big of a deal. Right. And it's not that I'm, 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 I mean, I'm not like saying, hey, let's all be lax. Those guys should have got thrashed. 
But my point being is, is that we have these situations where, uh, like the dude, the the Navy SEAL that just got pardoned by Trump, yeah, like, uh, that, that killed that killed the dude and all that stuff. That guy was out of control. But here's my point: Would he have been the way that he was if his command had grown some balls and yanked him into the office just one time? I'd be like, dude, like freaking, you you need to like take it down twenty five percent, you know, because the guy doesn't just walk out and become a total cowboy. His command lets him become a cowboy, you know. And so all I'm saying, I, I, I digressed a little bit, but the whole thing with like that dustpan, it's not because I think abusing a student, somebody's son is okay, but I'm just saying, this is not something we need to skin this guy alive for. We need to ream him out. You, you know what I mean? Show him where the freaking limits are and then let him go back out and do his job. Now, if he Fs up again and, you, and it's obvious, okay, now we got a pattern, that's a different thing. But there's a whole like CYA trend of overreacting. Like, how's this gonna play on CNN? Freaking dude, that's not your problem. They got that's that's PAO's got that, and like a Colonel, um, oh man, I'm, I'm from was it Mitchell? Anyway, he was my CO at at uh, at, 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 uh, at ITV. Um, anyway, and he was just like, yeah, it sucks when it's on CNN, but you know what? In th in, in three days, they're gonna forget about it. You, you know what yeah. I mean? Like don't don't let don't let news get in your loop. You know, like, yeah, it's the end of the world, but in 20 minutes, there's going to be a car wreck and they're going to go run, run and go look at that. So anyway, uh, so, but that was a great job. Uh, I got to be with some, like you're talking about, I got to be with some like real deal dudes because like my infantry career started with, with mech, you know, with armor, you, you know what I mean? And I didn't get into straight leg until I went to 2.8, you know? So 05 to 08, uh, I did all that stuff. Uh, if anything, being an H&S company was one of the hardest jobs I've ever been in. Uh, because I was I, I made captain and now I'm dealing with all of these majors and, and all this stuff. And literally, like I got I would just get into it with them. And and at, at the end of the day, you're a captain and they're a major. Like, you, you know, you know what I'm saying? I had this one dude. I'm not going to waste your time with like old stuff. But like this, uh, I was the company commander. Well, you might like this. It's a, a screen, a, a window into the stupid officer stuff, you know, so. This guy comes in and uh, I, I was going to do uh, like a company NJP or something. And this, the S3 for, for SOI, he had like crossed my name off the form and signed it like a total FU. So I went down to his office and I said, look, I don't mean any disrespect. I said, but, but you're a, a shop OIC. I'm the company commander. I said, you can't promote people. You can't pay people. You can't discipline people. That's my job. I said, I'm not trying to like, like disrespect you. But it's clear, like, like when you do that, you're freaking coming into my box. I said, we have this combative relationship, you know? And I said, I'll never forget it because this guy was a freaking tool. I was like, I was like, what can, what can I do to like bridge, to bridge this? Like, what, what, like you tell me what kind of peace pipe we can smoke. And he says, well, I'll tell you what we can do, Captain Dabbs. He's like, you can get out of my office and never come back. He was like, in fact, he's like, I want you to stay in your office and I never want to see you on the colonel's quarter deck. I don't want to see you walking around. I don't want to see you in this bullpen. I don't want to see you like this. You understand? I said, yes, sir. I understand. I was just like, I said, I'm just letting you know, I'm going to take this to my CO and the school CO. And, and it's up to the CO to, if he's going to stand behind one of his commanders or not. It's, a, it's above my pay grade. You know, I was like, have you got anything else for me, sir? No. Have a good day, sir. Beep. You know, and I took it to my boss who didn't do jack. So then I, I actually went around. I don't normally recommend it, but I went to the school XO 
And the school XO did freaking like yank the, like, you know what I'm saying? He did be like, well, like, dude, you need to freaking like, not like pretend to be a company, you know what I mean? Blah, blah, blah. So I, I don't, none of that is like harrowing, amazing stuff, but that's the, that's the kind of like stupid freaking office political BS that is just like, it doesn't even make you mad. It's just draining, you know? Uh, so anyway, that, uh, but that, but I will say on a positive note that that was like my political baptism of fire, you know, because before I'd been like, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm here, I'm leading my guys, doing my thing, doodly, doodly, do. And I don't, and, you know, and everything is in straight lines. It's not complicated. You got a job, you got a schedule, you do it, you execute, problems come up, you fix them, blah, blah, blah. And I had to encounter, and to this day, I'm not, I'd lie to you if I told you I was a master operator of office politics. I still suck you know, um, but, but anyway, but that was my first, like, whoa, like, where's this guy coming from? You know, I don't, it sounds like it's personal. What's up with this personal shit? You know, you know what I mean? It was like totally alien to me, you know? So anyway, again, you can chop that, but uh, then I went to 2-8 and you guys know the story uh, with 2-8, uh, went in Fox, then I was the HNSCO defending Fab Deli and uh, uh I, I will say real quick, I'm going to jump ahead. You were talking about Afghanistan, post-Afghanistan. Actually, I'll tell you, and, and, I, and I promise, I think you think it's, it's worth it. Um, two, two quick Afghanistan anecdotes. One is just pure comedy. Uh, La Rosa, he's my, my gunny. Uh, anyway, so I'm bibbity bopping through Delhi, and he comes over. He says what every officer wants to hear. Like, we had a big problem, but it's been taken care of, you know. Anyway, <laughs> he's like, so he's like, I'm not going to name this guy, but okay. Marine is on the, 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 the post or the gate. I call it the hands across America post. Cause it's a co-located post with an ANA and a freaking Marine. And it's just like, Oh, look, Oh, Marines, Marines and Afghans working together. Isn't that beautiful? You know, anyway, so they're on post <laughs> and this dude like reaches over and grabs, I'll just call him Smith. Cause I, I don't want him to see this and get like all freaking pissed. He grabs like Smith's genital area, you know, Ooh. and now Smith, let me tell you this, this guy, like I should have, I, I really, I couldn't have done it, but he deserved like a, like a NAM or a comp. He didn't like crush the guy's sinuses with his freaking rifle. He freaking just like checked him. You, you know what I mean? He freaking whacked him across the armor and knocked him down. That's all. And then he got off the post and went and found La Rosa. So La Rosa's like, okay. You know, like from now on, we're not putting you on post with any freaking Afghans. You're you're on the rotation, but you're not going to be on that post. Okay. I'm like, hey, th thanks for letting me know, Gunny. I appreciate it. So I get ambushed with, with this. And that's all I thought about it. it was stupid, but okay. He took care of it. Uh, and, and, and the Marine in question exercised a huge amount of restraint. And I'm not, this is the, not the joke part. If he had freaking butt stroked that guy, it would have gone all the way up to freaking RCT, you know, whatever. But he did. Good for him, wherever you are. And so, so fast forward, like you can't make this up. So like a few days go by and he, so LaRosa comes back. He's like, we got another problem. He's like, but it has also been taken care of, you know? He's like, <laughs> okay, you know that whole thing with uh, so-and-so, you know, the thing where they grabbed his junk? Yeah, yeah. Well, he's like, well, okay. The dude, uh, the, the, like the Sergeant First Class, whatever, the, the Afghan, the ANA, SNCIC, just hit me up and they want to buy him. And like, I'm like, what? Like, buy what? Buy buying who? And they're like, we want, they want to buy so-and-so. I was like, <laughs> I was like, okay, what did you say? Did you say like, yeah, okay. Or <laughs> do you like haggle with them? 
And they're like, no, I, like, he's like, sir, I'm not joking. Like, like they, they want to purchase him like that, 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 you know, and I was just like, okay, well, I assume you've got this figured out. So what'd you do? And he says like, the, like there's that post that's all the way over on the other side of the LZ by the back gate. And he's on that post permanently for the duration of the deployment, you know, just to keep him away from these dudes. Cause they, obviously they want him, you know, and uh, they might harass him or, you know, you know, you know it'll be something like that. Right. So anyway, uh, so that, that story has no point, but uh, it's just one of those, those crazy things. Uh, La Rosa, he negotiated uh, sex slavery like a freaking pro. <laughs> you know, did everything right. The nuances uh, of war. You know, anyway. Uh, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. I, I, don't, I can't remember. There was another story that actually was like kind of serious and I forgot what it was. But so you, you got the ball, man. So I wanted to ask you about that. Um, oh, yeah. You knew about Afghanistan before most people did. And I remember you telling us uh, in a company formation that we're going to Afghanistan. And everyone was like, what the fuck is he talking about? Like, what is Afghanistan? You know, we're still thinking, oh, we're going to Basra because that's where like the last safe haven of terrorists are or Al-Qaeda units. And, uh, you know, that's what that's what we're thinking. But yeah, I think you remembered your story. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, real quick, to answer your question first, it's just like, uh, you know, it, it, that like that's the word that came down. Uh, through official channels. I don't believe the CO told us. It might have been, it might have been the XO. I don't but, but like we got we got yanked in and, and everybody kind of knew like, hey, it's on the fence. Speaking for myself, but I, I if I recall the, the company felt kind of the same way. Like Iraq was going to suck. Uh, and this is something you might not know. Uh, is because uh, when I was the CO of Fox, we went on a, like about a two and a half week uh, trip to Iraq. We spent a week at a counterinsurgency school in Altacottam, and then we spent a week doing site surveys. Fox was actually going to go to Haditha. Um, yeah, I, th I don't think any of this is classified now or whatever, 15 freaking years later or whatever. Uh, but they were basically going to, they were going to spread 2-8 out along the worm and, and with a company at each of the major population centers. And we were going to be at Haditha. They gave us the whole breakdown of Haditha, how they had just fired the police chief because the dude, like, you know, like, you know, when the insurgents controlled Haditha, they it was very famous. They beheaded everybody in the soccer stadium, you know. And then when they took the, when, and the, 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 um, the, the Sunni uprising or whatever, when they took the town back, they started freaking whacking dudes, you know, uh, like, like, because it's like us, same thing in Afghanistan. They all look the same to us. The Iraqis know, like, who's who. And they had, this is what we were told by Intel. They had dudes like just chilling out at the bus stop. And when guys would get off the bus, like if they'd say they got paroled from Abu Ghraib or they were just coming in from out of town, they were like, get him, take him. They take him down the dump site, bah, freaking execute him. And everybody, and, and again, um, I don't think I'll cause any problems, but everybody was cool with this. You know what I'm saying? This is where the wacko, crazy Iraqi stuff works in our benefit because we're going to put them on trial and rid of habeas corpus. But, let them do it. Like, like this is their thing. They knew who they know who to whack. Let them keep whacking. And so they did. Uh, then they came out that the, the brother was like a business dude, the brother of the police chief. And so then he, you know, you got to ruin it for everybody. He starts frigging whacking other like civilians that are like business, business rivals. And once he started whacking, like totally not war related, then they, they were like, nope, that's it. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, and they fired him. 
you know, so that was basically, we were going to come in into this situation where they had like a lot of up people. They gave us the whole background, but it was all because of SOFA and they, and they laid out like, like, we're not going to leave the FOB, first of all. Uh, second of all, if you've got to leave the FOB for any reason, you got to coordinate with the Iraqi security forces, which are completely freaking Al Qaeda up out the yin yang. You, you know what I'm saying? Completely compromised. Even that we knew that even then, you know, um, and so when the word came down, hey, like freaking Iraq is a bust. We're, we're going to go to Afghanistan. I was freaking thrilled. I had never been to Afghanistan. And I was just like, like, I don't want to call down a jinx on myself. I was like, but we're going to we're going to fight in Afghanistan. We're going to they're just going to sit, look at porn, play PlayStation and never leave the wire and, and like hate their life uh, you, you, for seven months, you, you know. And if we do go out, it's going to be like in an insane threat level. And I'm not trying to be flippant, but it is true. We're going to get some dude killed. We're going to get some dude maimed because we wanted to freaking play patty cake, you know, with Iraqi security forces and show them how much we trust them, you know, like forget it, you know. Um, so I personally was, was very happy. Uh, there was no, from my level, there was no secret squirrel stuff. They just brought us in. Hey, this is it. And then I meet literally like within 10 minutes, you guys were in formation. I was telling you, you know, like, hey, we're going to Afghanistan, you know. Um, but uh, real quick, the, the story did pop in my mind. And this actually has a, has a point. Very, I'll be, keep it very quick. But uh, so we had Balaclava. I don't know if you guys remember Balaclava. It was you had Delhi on one side of the district center. Balaclava was this little fob on the other side of the district center. And it was occupied by a, a squad of guys from Fox. I don't remember which one because I, I wasn't there at that time. So I had done uh, a big like pre-deployment training package for H&S company, which really sucked. And all, the, all of the, the section OICs, everybody fought me every step of the way. You know, you know, and I'm not I'm not throwing rocks at them. I'm just saying like me, I'm like, we need these all these H&S dudes need to be auxiliary infantry as much as possible. Casual, casually training, you know, as much stuff as we can do. And they're like, you're just taking our guys away where they can't do their freaking primary job. So there was just this constant back and forth, but it all paid off because Kavanis took me aside, said, Hey, I'm going to rotate that squad down. Can we, can we plus that up with H and S? I was like, absolutely. You know, I was like, that's what, what, that's what we prepared to do. We're like, you know, so uh, the only, the only caveat would be like, I don't think that uh, they need to be there by themselves at first. Like, not, like I'll go with them or I'll send, like La Rosa or, or, or any staff NCO from freaking a, a section. But uh, it, it's not that far away, but it's isolated enough that I don't want to put just a bunch of dudes there with like no, no directions, no guidance, no nothing. So we go over there and, and I ended up staying at Balaclava for a couple of days. Uh, and, uh, and it was really, it was almost like a vacation. It was quiet. It was small. I could, it was, I could control the whole thing just by walking around instead of like, because I would try to hit the post every day at Delhi, uh, you know, and, and, you know, and it's, it was, it was kind of a, of, of a thing, you know? Um, oh, but uh, so anyway, I go, I go use the head, right? There's two heads and there's the American, well, the American NATO head and the, and the Pashtun head. And I'm, and it's, it's a funny thing, but I don't mean it in a funny way. I'm like, I know this is going to be effed up, you know, but I want to see it. You know, you know what I mean? Maybe I got some kind of weirdo fetish or something like that. So, <laughs> so I like open it up, right? And there's like fecal matter. I mean, like, like you would expect, right? 
on the walls, almost on the ceiling. It's everywhere, right? And I was just like, yeah, like, hey, what did you expect? You know, like, you surprised? And so, but then, hey, but this is the thing, right? It flashed in my mind right there. These guys ain't, are not going to, if they can't do this, how, like, I think Jeffersonian democracy, uh, you know, is, is out of their reach. Just saying that, you know, bicameral legislature is out of their reach. <laughs> if you got a freaking portage on that's got human excrement smeared up the wall, you're not ready. You're not ready for English common law, you know, and all the centuries of crap that went into making this country. And that, and that sounds like a, I'm being, I don't mean it as a dog on them, like a cheap shot. It's just the truth. And I, and, and, and I won't say it was a revelation, but it was like a mini revelation. It's like, dang, like we, we think these guys are going to be like Republicans and Democrats in like a couple of weeks or something. And that's, you know, and then I forgot about it. And I moved on, went on with my life, you know, but, but it was the first little thing that, as we all know, played out in a, in a big way that I think everybody could see coming but nobody thought it was going to happen that fast, you know? Um, so anyway, so that's, that's, that's my story. It was like, it was a kind of a stupid story, but it really did like the light bulb went on. Like, like, what are we thinking? Like, like, you, you know what I'm saying? And now that's what I think now, if you sit here and I'm not going to go on a long diatribe, but think about Iraq, think about Afghanistan, think about the, their cultures, their histories, which I know you men are, are familiar with. Think about our country, everything that went into it, all the traditions. Jefferson learned to speak Italian so he could read Machiavelli, uh, which I highly recommend The Prince. The Prince is a joke. Read the discourses on Livy. That's the real Machiavelli. The Prince is a freaking job application. It's a good book, but that's not who he really is. But anyway, my point is Jefferson learned to read it so he could read about, you know, you know read Italian political theory, you know. Anyway, so you have all of this goes into this. And now we're going to go to Iraq and especially Afghanistan. Where we're going to wave a magic wand. We're going to kill a few bad guys. And we're, and we're going to have, I think, the ultimate goal, which is we're going to have two American-backed democratic governments on either side of Iran. We're going to have Iran hemmed in with these two like American puppet state democracies. And now, and I'm not saying this is anything special. I think we're all on the same sheet. I can sit here, you know, 2022 and think, what the F were we thinking? That is insane. Like the idea that all of these neoconservative triple PhD guys thought that, hey, yeah, intervening in the Caucasus, intervening in the Middle East, building democracy from the ground up, that's the way we're going to epochally change the Middle East. Like, you know, like I can look like, how did we ever think that we could do this, you know? And why didn't like, I don't expect like just the average Joe to be like, I don't know. Like you had the rage with 9-11. I understand that. And, and I think invading Afghanistan was a, was a good idea. But like once we accomplished our goals, which we did in the first year or two, then we should have got out. But that's another story. But it just, it, it's astounding to me. And, and I'll put myself there with everybody else. Did I write my congressman? Did I go protest? You know, you know what I mean? I'm not trying to like wave the stick at everybody. I'm, I'm, I was, I'm a citizen like anyone else. And I'm culpable just like everyone's culpable that sat there and let this go on for 20 years and never asked. It was like, hey, what, what are we doing? What are we doing in there? I forgot. I can't even remember. We're just there and we die. And we, and we die. You know, that's, that's kind of what we're doing. Um, but anyway, but all of that goes back to that little port of story. That was when the light bulb first clicked on. I was like, oh, okay. So, but that's, uh, yeah, yeah. You, please. 
Yeah, that's a that's an interesting point. And I wanted to ask because me and Paul were preparing to do an interview with somebody um, during the whole fall of Afghanistan uh, era. And I was prepping for this uh, dialogue. <clears throat> and I started going back to the early 2001, 2002 uh, speeches where uh, George Bush was adamant about moving into Afghanistan. And then you had Donald Rumsfeld saying, yeah, this is going to be bad if we get bogged down. Um, some people say, hey, it was a nation building aspect of it that kind of led to this stagnation. And uh, and then just strategic atrophy overall, like, you know, in 2015, USOCOM released some of its uh, gray zone reports indicating that, hey, we've had a shitty ass history talking about, um, you know, conflicts that were never really resolved we just contained it and then moved on about it forgot about it and here we are with you know oif oef ond and then now we're still in syria right now mm -hmm. and then we have subsequent conflicts taking place in africa and then we have this whole ukraine situation taking place you know what's what's the right way to approach this multi-tiered framework um with what I would call literal entropy, right? We're just, we're organized, but we're becoming increasingly disorganized in a way where I don't foresee us being a dominant force for good uh, in the next 10 to 20 years. And this mm -hmm. is kind of why I approach everything through the IO lens slash mental health lens. Um, we've forgotten that the individual is very, very important. And the individual today and what I call the, the metal war framework um, can deconstruct an entire institution by saying one thing or doing one thing. Yep. yep, yep. And it's just as dangerous as a nation state, you know, you know, doing whatever they're doing. Um, so yeah. Uh, I, yeah. I mean, I was pissed the fuck off back in 2019, December when the Washington papers came out and, you know, they, they interviewed literally 400 people so the the uh the cigars report indicated that for the past you know 18 years there was no strategic outline to you know getting out of afghanistan there was a bunch of false reports that came through saying that we knew what we were doing um and then you know i try to i try to justify it because i think that was my ego playing into it tactically i don't think we failed i know we no. did a shit job diplomatically and having been, you know, a contractor uh, with Academy and having been exposed to some of the dealings that were taking place, I can see why, especially seeing it in Kabul. Uh, it was just a shit show. And I, I didn't see, I just couldn't see it happening. But then again, you know that, you know, I, I exist to only fight. So I was like, my ego was like saying, nah, we're going to finish this through. But nonetheless, you know, 2019 happens. And you would think that we'd get our chips together and say, we're going to come up with a solid plan. But then we got bogged into um, this uh, election cycle, which I think took away uh, this, I think what's going to be one of the most detrimental impacts to our community as a whole, because it's a narrative that's been diced up. Uh, it's, when it's brought up, it's, it's a giant failure. And that giant failure is attached to everyone that participated in it. And then there's, you know, people with personal agendas that have, you know, 
whatever they want to say and how they're going to view it. And they have the constituency to, to make it that case. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I just, uh, I, I mean, I know, I think it probably, you know, this is kind of crazy, but you know what we should have done? We should have just cycled specific populations from Afghanistan into America, given them the American culture and then sent them back. Because I think still at the end of the day, American culture wins, right? And American culture is like, you know, you got your McDonald's and your Burger Kings and whatnot, but you know, it's those types of freedoms that I think we enjoy, you know, and I'm not saying that Burger King or McDonald's or is, you know, is freedom or, you know, it's a mixture between of capitalism and whatever, but you know, you know what I'm talking about, like just that American culture, that, that idea of, of free, being free and being able to cross the state line without being, you know, checked and whatnot, uh, would have been more impactful and organic, uh, to the overall situation. And, and now I don't, I don't even, I mean, I try not to think about Afghanistan in the, in the sense that it was a failure or kind of what's going on. And I kind of see what's going on right now. Um, but my eyes are more drawn to, the whole geopolitical spectrum between what's happening between the CCP and Russia and just the fact that it was a strategic failure leaving Bagram, knowing that the CCP is around the corner. Anyway, what are your thoughts on, on all that? Um, basically, like, um, I was very, very surprised. I was actually uh, working for a security company doing like real nitnoid stuff. And, um, uh, uh, they actually had a, a, a job that opened up in um, Kabul. Uh, the company had, uh, it was a base that had uh, security forces from Nepal or em- the employees of this. It's, it's allied. I mean, I'm not, it's not like the Nepalese school, allied security, you know. So they had like third country national security and they needed a guy. And they put this thing out to everybody from Afghanistan. It was, and it was basically like 100K um you know to go do it which is you know uh, you know that's that's pretty good and um and so i went ahead and i started moving forward and they were like well you need an active clearance i'm like well my clearance expired uh you know but if you can jazz it back up um you know like i don't know what you can do and they're like well we'll get back to you and literally like three days later afghanistan collapsed You, you know what i'm saying so uh but it was very interesting how all of this stuff was going on I mean, that was one little window into what was going on that they were trying to staff up this thing. And I mean, if they had known, obviously, that it was going to go so quick, they just would have yanked those guys out of there, not bother trying to try to insource like leadership at the last friggin' second. Um, there was a, and I, I don't remember the names, but uh, there was like a, like a, uh, a CIA official contacted the head of the Taliban. And then the, 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 one of the head honchos, and I, I apologize, I don't know the names, actually, and that's where it all collapsed, was he, uh, one of the, he went to the palace and talked to the president. And, you know, and once, uh, when the word got out that, hey, the dude is talking to the president, that's when the, the, the security forces completely collapsed right then, bam, you know. And um, I was very also sad because I'm a huge fan, like most people, I'm a huge fan of Ahmad Shah Massoud, you know, who he was assassinated um, uh, September 10th, I think, 2001, the Lion of the Pangir, uh, a hero, uh, you know, by, by any, any stretch. And, uh, 
and it's interesting they 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 killed him with a suicide vest and a they were they were posing as reporters and to do an interview and they had a bomb in the camera and a bomb in the vest and they killed him literally like the day before 9 11. uh and they did it obviously because they knew we're going to hit him and then they're going to they're going to come to afghanistan when they come to afghanistan they've got the first guy they're going to talk to is masood you know and um Masood's son, I guess he went to Sandhurst Military College over the last couple of years in England. Mm -hmm. And then he came back, led the Northern Alliance, and then the Northern Alliance, bloop, they just folded like that. And last I heard, uh, Dotson, you know, Heavy D, the guy that like put all those Taliban guys in shipping containers and let them suffocate to death. Uh, like he ran, Masood Jr. ran. I mean, I'm glad they're not dead. Like, yeah, I'm, but I'm, I understand they did what they did. Uh, but my initial hope was, was that, hey, they're going to hold out in the Panjir Valley like they always have. The, the Soviets never got in there. The Taliban never got in there. The other warlords never got in there. And I figured, hey, they're just going to hold out until something changes. And they didn't hold out. But, but that was what that surprised me even more than the country collapsing so quickly um, because they've, you know, anyway. Um, but yeah, that's uh, as far as like the fall of Afghanistan. I think you're going to see, as you pointed out, the CCP waiting in the wings. Uh, my my half sister, no, excuse me, my sister-in-law, who's a she lives in Seattle. She's a total granola hippie type, uh, but she actually sent me an article, uh, and it was a, a, about uh, the gigantic, uh, massive um, mineral resources in Afghanistan. Mm. Like Afghanistan is not like I mean, it's not Saudi Arabia, but it's not like the wasteland we thought it was. There's a gajillion bucks, and what I think you're going to see that the Chinese do is they're going to do, I'm not going to say what we should have done, but they're going to come in, they're going to rope off their, their projects. You know what I mean? And just, and just extract, uh, they're going to, you know, just like we, like we did in Africa, we being like Western civilization, we're going to put in a puppet, give them a gold Rolls Royce, extract everything, not really care about the security situation unless it's directly adjacent. And then when we yanked everything out, we're out, you know, um, probably take you know 10 or 15 years uh, but the, the only thing i would just caveat and i think that the achilles heel and i don't want to come across as like a, a psychopath here but it, like the like the 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 bill crystals uh the neoconservative types certainly the obama administration types who are this is basically the people that and i'm not trying to be political i'm sorry uh but the, the people that are feeding joe his, his mush and wiping his face and stuff, the people that are really running the country. Uh, and I would really love to know who they are, like their names yeah. and not, not for any partisan reason. I'm like, you're in charge. You six or seven people are running this country. And I would like to know as a citizen who you are. That's all, you know. Um, but all none of these people can, and I'll use Dostum as an example, you know, the warlord. Uh, we used to have this kind of joke. I mean, I, I'm not saying it went around and around, but there was a joke when we were in Iraq, you know, in 05. Uh, and we were like, man, this sucks. Like, you know, <laughs> we would say, you know who we need to, to like to help us? Saddam Hussein. That's who we need, you know. And and it, but there's but there's an element of truth to that. Uh, I mean, Hussein's a dictator. I'm not here to wave a dictator flag. I'm very well acquainted with his various atrocities. But Hussein ran Iraq. ISIS or, or ter terrorists would never operate in Iraq. Uh, the only violence in Iraq was this clan stuff where like one clan tried to whack Saddam at one point. And, and so, but the terrorists were too freaking scared to go there. 
uh, because and the way that you run a place like Afghanistan is you get like, God willing, you get a Masood, but you at least have got to get a Dostum. Like Masood was famous for being very humane. He was very much like Saladin, which I've been reading about. Saladin, the, the great Muslim hero, warrior, was an amazing man, far more than I ever expected. And he was famous for being very, very like, especially for his time, being very merciful, you know, uh, to captured enemies and stuff like that. Um, but if you don't have a Masood, you got to have a Dostum. It's like in Chile, hey, if all you got is Pinochet, you run with Pinochet. You're like, yeah, yeah, Pinochet sucks, you know. Um, but and, and there's a disconnect with the American foreign policy establishment uh, that doesn't seem to grasp that, dude, it's kind of like you're talking about Burger King. Hey, I want a Whopper. Well, we don't have any Whoppers today. They're like you, you can't have what you want today. You got you can have a chicken sandwich. Your choices are a chicken sandwich or nothing, you know. And uh, and we just sim simply and also the American people and as much as they engage with foreign policy, they can't seem like like the situation in Ukraine. I was talking to one of my buds about that, you know, and I was just like, this is way more complicated than you think. The story is you have evil, horrible Hitlerian Russians attacking soulful, beautiful, marvelous Ukrainians that just want to be left alone and be free. That's not really true. You know, you have like corrupt petrocrat neo-Nazis, you know, I'm not saying they're Nazi the way the Germans were Nazis, but there are very powerful neo-Nazi elements with Ukraine. I went to school with a bunch of Ukrainians. I like them. Uh, you know, I've tried to date one of them. I, I don't have any kind of animus against the Ukrainian people. It sucks, you know, to be in that situation. But, but you can basically see the political theater of them. There's a couple of basic tropes, evil dictator versus this, blah, 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 this, you know, and they're just trying to shoo it in. And I'm just using this to make a point, not be partisan, but it's the facts. You can look it up. Bill Clinton was paid, I think, like $450,000 for like a, a 40 minute speech. Uh, back, this is back when Hillary was Secretary of State. Hillary sold Russia all this uranium. John Podesta had a big petro stock portfolio. Colin Powell, the recently deceased Colin Powell, had a big fat petro stock portfolio. Well, like Russia was the Wild West. It was a great way, for, if you're in the, the, jet, the jet set, to make vast amounts of money, you know, and we didn't give a crap. And we, and we, and we cooperated with Russia on all kinds of counterterror operations. Uh, which I don't think is a bad thing. I'm just saying there was a, a lot of, of intelligence sharing that we ignored. They like the remember the Boston bombing, the Sarnaya. Yeah, the Russia, Sarnaya Russia told us those dudes yeah. are like terrorists. We're just letting you know. Ah, yeah, whatever. You know. Anyway, but I say all that to say that we had this ambiguous relationship with Russia. And then there's the famous line in 1984 by George Orwell, where you know we're in Oceania. I'm getting it wrong, but you know the whole thing. Oceania is at war with East, uh, is at peace with East Asia. Then you get up the next day, the newspaper says, Oceania is at war with East Asia, you know? And then there's the famous line like, whoa, I thought we were at peace. Like, no, we're at war with East Asia. We've always been at war with East Asia, you know? And there's the whole idea of we're constructing this narrative as we go uh, in a very slapdash, very sloppy and transparent way. And you, Trump American, are expected to, to swallow it, you know? Uh, so I'm and, and just to be clear, like Russia is a regional threat. Russia is authoritarian. Russia is like I'm not like yay Russia, you know, but Russia, uh, uh, they they do the reason it's so hard for Americans, especially American paper pushing bureaucrat types, to understand Russia acts in its own national interests. And I'm not being cute when I say that is a 
a concept that is completely lost on this country. We do everything for these causes of, of varying altruism. Uh, but like if Russia wants to screw with Ukraine, they're doing it because they don't want Ukraine to be part of NATO. You know, I'm not saying like, yay, that's great. I'm just saying that's why they're doing it. Just like they took Crimea because they want a Black Sea access. Because, you know, you know what I'm saying? And, and, and the crazy thing, they're going to supply all of Germany's gas or whatever through Nord Stream 2. So my point being is, is that I'm, I'm not here to make a moral judgment. I'm just here to say that it's not insane and crazy for a country to freaking plus itself up, you know. And Ukraine uh, does not have a, a, I'm not saying they deserve to get invaded by no means. Uh, but Ukraine, if you really delve into their history, they're not a bunch of choir boys, you know, tilling the fields in peace. And now here comes the Russians, you know. Uh, they have a history of, uh, of, of, of violence, being the victims of violence and like the Holodomor by the Soviets. But also with a lot of the reason that Stalin uh, killed all the Ukrainians is because when the Soviets invade, excuse me, when not the Nazis, and forgive me, I know you know this, but when the Nazis invaded Ukraine, the Ukrainians looked at them as liberators. They were like, yay, the Nazis are here, we're free. Because the Nazis are murderous, but the Nazis didn't care if the Ukrainians went back to church again. They did, you know what I'm saying? And that's the thing you see with fascistic authoritarianism versus the Marxist authoritarianism, which it sounds like I'm getting all weird, but I'm not. This is cancel culture. Like a fascistic authoritarian thing, it might murder you, it might torture you, you know, but all it wants you to do is just obey. You, 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 you get in line or you get shot. But when you get into, especially like Maoism and struggle sessions and all of that stuff, now you get into, it's not enough. Like your obedience is not enough. You, in your heart of hearts, you've got to agree with me, period. You know, no compromise. And that's where you get into the, you know, the whole Orwellian, uh, you know, thing, where that's the final line of, of 1984, where he's like, he, he, he finally figured it out. He loved Big Brother. That's the last line. He's like, finally, like all of this struggle, I can finally relax and I can, I can, I can, uh, I can finally be at peace and understand that all of my resistance to authoritarian rule was wrong. And I can finally look at this authoritarian father figure and say, I love you. You, you, you know what I mean? And that's the final defeat of the novel. And I know that sounds very extreme, but that's why like some jack off can't be on Spotify and say something, you, 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 you know what I'm saying? Um, this this insane uh insistence on like you know almost like a secular religious insistence on 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 your left-wing spiritual purity you know and our right to police you you know and punish you as, as we see fit and i'm not trying to be overtly political i'm just saying is when i look at the mind control stuff i see the left and that actually clicks going all the way back you know what I mean, through the history of, of, uh, of, of political Marxism in action. Uh, and th there's an all-encompassingness that you don't see in right-wing fascistic movements like the Falange or the Nazis. You see a lot of brutality. You see a lot of murder. You see a lot of torture. But you don't, you, they, you, they just don't give a F about what's going on in somebody's mind. And, and Marx, Marxist and Marxist-adjacent things, too. So anyway, I apologize, but that is a pet peeve of mine. No, 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 totally. Um, and, uh, and I think that without diving into that rabbit hole, that is kind of at the heart of what's wrong with the country and why we've turned in on ourselves. Uh, you can read the Communist Manifesto 
in like 20 minutes. It takes longer to read all of the introductions than it takes to read the manifesto. And, uh, and the manifesto is, is very, very simple, you know? And it's just like, you know, these people, we, they can't be, it says that's one of the lines, like, you know, like, uh, you know, the, the bourgeois, uh, the ruling classes simply cannot be allowed to exist, period. You know, because, because of their domination of the proletariat. And, and because of that, uh, you know, they, they just need to be wiped out, period. That's, you know, without any compromise. And what you see today, all of the economic crap about Marx failed within a generation, but now it's been moved to, all, to race politics, ethnic politics, uh, like historical revisionism, uh, this really bizarre identitarianism. It's kind of like they're, they're looking at the real, and I'm not, I'm not just joking, like the real history of white supremacy in America, the real history, not a buzzword, but back when like the sheriff was in the Klan and all of that stuff, the governor was in the Klan. It's like they're looking at that template and saying, yeah, let's let's redo all of this. Oh, all, let's do it all over again. Just we're just gonna flip it instead of like kind of the classic Martin Luther King. Hey, you know, uh, and I, I will get off my soapbox, but one of my favorite lines from King, King was a lot more complicated than people think, but he uh it, the final speech in Memphis, you know, the, the night before he's killed, but he has he got a bunch of death threats when he was gonna go to Memphis. And he said, there's just a word, this is the line, exactly what he says. I'd like to say a word about our sick white brothers, you know, and about how like these people that threatening him, like, you know, he had, he had like this kind of Christianized compassion for them, you know, uh, and that has completely been obliterated from, from our racial discourse. It's gone. Uh, and, and they, they parade King around, uh, but like none of this looks anything like the letter from a Birmingham jail you, you, you know you know what I'm saying it's really it's yeah. basically we took like Maoism and we slapped a Martin Luther King on it so anyway please please if you, proceed if you want a good source too and I don't know if like people want to dive into it but there's a company called unconstrained analytics and they produce a lot of materials um, materials that are academic um, that really dive into the historical context of how all these um, just different ideologies pervaded the left and uh, how all of a sudden, you know, the thought police uh, are currently controlling our every move and so forth. Um, I, I, I see the right and the left as two sides of the same coin. Um, these far, far, far extreme groups are gonna be the ruin of everyone that's caught in between. Uh, there's, yeah, that's all I'm going to say about that. Uh, sure. I, but I would throw what I would throw out just as a general idea too is that we need to redefine the, the discussion. From yeah. it no longer needs to be right versus left. It needs to be authoritarian versus anti-authoritarian. Uh, you, you know what I'm saying? And the the we've all been culturally programmed, and this is not a cheap shot. This is just an honest observation left-wing culture controls our cultural institutions. You don't go out and see, unless you watch Red Dawn uh, or like a John Milius movie, you see everything through the, through the leftist cultural lens in, in as much as there's any political or cultural content. I'm not saying everything, like, like some whack job, but you know, the rich are bad, the poor are good, uh, you know, uh, like you know, war is evil, the militarists are the bad guys, blah, blah, blah. 
you know, these are all of these, these, and I'm not saying all of this is false on its face, but I'm just saying these are all these tropes. Um, and the trope is, is that you have the, 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 the soulful, uh, free bohemian left uh, versus the old authoritarian killjoy stick up the rear end right. Uh, and that paradigm is long gone. Um, if you haven't seen the movie Syriana, I, I highly recommend it as a, just as a movie. It's a good movie. I don't agree with its politics, but it is a very well-made movie. And, um, but it's based on two books by Robert Baer of CIA fame. Uh, Baer wrote See No Evil, which is about his career in the CIA, and uh, Sleeping with the Devil, which is about our relationship with the Saudi, Saudi royal family. Uh, he also wrote another book that's really good called The Devil We Know, which is about our his, history of Iran. Um, anyway, but Bear, I don't agree with Bear. Bear's kind of like kind of a little bit of a neocon, but Bear does, Bear's been there and he has a lot of interesting observations. So in the movie, uh, which is very complicated and I won't get into it, it's got multiple plot lines all going at the same time. But part of the plot is these shady oil dudes trying to buy a pipeline in Kazakhstan, you know. And uh, Chris Cooper plays one guy, Tim Blake Nelson, who was in, um, uh, but he played Buster Scruggs in that Netflix thing. Anyway, but like country bumpkin looking dudes, you know, and they're like, yeah, man, we're here to extract oil and da, 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 da. And they're very much like, these are Texas Republicans, those bastards at it again. Well, when you read the book, the, the shakers and movers about like, like getting clearance and making a jillion dollars building an oil pipeline through Kazakhstan was the Clinton administration. It was the flower children making a good, a good jillion shady bucks. And my point here is not to just beat up on the left. My point is to say the idea that the left is, is pure and good and, the, and it's, oh, those old fogey, stodgy right-wingers, here they go again. That is over, it's done. That, yeah. that, you, know, you know what I'm saying? It's completely outdated. And you can, I, and you, I, you can sit here and I can, you know, I can spend 20 minutes nitpicking the right and say everything that's effed up about them. I'm just making the point that the whole left right thing is rapidly losing its relevance. And now it's about, do you want, do you want to like be controlled or not? And there's authoritarian elements on the left and on the right. I, and I'm, I might piss you off a little bit. I'm sorry. Uh, the, the, it's, the, it's, it's, you're supposed to say, oh, Hey, it's a little bit of you. Hey, it's a little bit of you. I'm like, no, it's the left. You know, that's just me. You're free to disagree. Uh, and, and the right has its own. And, and I'm not like, uh, you know, being dense. The right has its own pathologies, its own dangers, its own cultural traps. You, you know what I mean? It's all that, that type of thing. Um, but that said, uh, what we should all want, regardless of the, the nitnoid parts of our political belief system is, I mean, and I know it's, it's a gross oversimplification, but it's freedom. You know, yeah. I, I should be able to get on the computer and say whatever the F I want and not worry about getting fired. I should be able to read what I want, watch what I want, do what I want. Uh, you know, and that's something that unites everybody. Everybody feels that way. But then we get into this this murky political realm where it's like, well, actually, no, if you believe this, you're, you're not allowed to say you're, you can't say this. You can't watch this. You can't do this. And it's fascinating because I grew up in a very conservative religious home, you know, and the 1980s and 1990s, especially the early 90s, was the last gasp of the Christian culture war, where like Christian political stuff could be like Last Temptation of Christ came out, you know, Martin Scorsese film, 
very controversial. And they were able to get the theater shut down. Like, no, we're not letting that evil blasphemous movie get shown. And, you know, and like that is over with churches right now. And I can tell you from personal experience, churches are just, they're struggling to get people to show up. They're not, they don't have time to have some kind of theocratic hegemony. Like, you know, like people imagine they do. Um, so I say all that to say that forget left, right. Look at like who is pushing for authoritarianism. And attack, and attack and resist. The other thing is, and this is a big thing with me, because I've kind of like, I've always kind of known what I think. I've always been an opinionated person. The last year I have really, and I'm not trying to sound like melodramatic or amazing. Uh, I'm just saying like, I've really like, re, like for the first time in my life, I've really thought through my political ideology. And I really look at myself. And, I, and again, I'm not trying to make this about me. I'm trying to use me as an example. Is like I look at myself as like post-conservative, um, and it's not that I'm no longer have basic conservative John Lockean whatever type beliefs, but it's just that conservatism is a loser politically. It's it's conservatism has been retreating for forty years. It's lost everything except guns. You, you know what I'm saying? If you look at every issue, and I'm not here to champion these issues. I'm not saying I even give a crap about the issues per se, but I'm just saying if you look at every single fight over like in the culture war over the last four decades, the left bats a thousand, it wins every time. And then when Republicans elect people, they don't do anything. They're, they're complete statists. I used to like, I used to get on the Huffington Post back in the 2000s and argue. And I was, you know, I was very much like a rah-rah neocon, we should be an Iraq guy. I mean, I'm not gonna lie. I went through that kind of evolution, you know? And, um, and I would stick up for Bush, be like, you know, oh, Bush, he's a, chimpy, he's a monkey, he's a moron. And I'd be like, no, no, you know, Bush wants this and Bush wants that. And now I look at the Bush family and I have nothing but contempt for them. Uh, with the exception, okay, George Sr. fought in World War II, you know, respect, you know, he almost got eaten by cannibals on this, these Japanese that have turned cannibal. That's great, you know. But, but the Klan itself is part of the overarching, and I'm not gonna put my tinfoil hat on, but I'm just saying, it's part of this overarching occupational class. And I would recommend, and I think I said this in our last conversation, uh, and, and people have a, a strong reaction to uh, Steve Bannon. And I think Bannon has kind of turned into a little bit of a douchebag. Um, but, but back in 2014, Bannon made a speech at the Vatican. This is before he was a name guy. He was just like a Catholic entrepreneur. Uh, but if you read his speech, there's a lot of good stuff in there. And he called a lot of stuff. But one of his comments and whatever else you want to say about him, and I don't agree with him, but he said part of the problem is, is that a guy in Goldman Sachs in New York City feels more companionship. You know, what I mean? he feels more of a connection with a stock guy in Prague in London than he feels with a farmer in Nebraska. That, that, that there's this overarching connection that where the, the people that are running things aren't connected to us. They're connected with their own Davos you know, uh, whatever class, you know, and I, and I'm, I don't want to sound like a, like a kook or anything like that. I'm not a, like a conspiracy theorist dude, but it is obvious to me in my eyes, I think have kind of been opened, uh, that like Epstein, all of these things in the, in the broadest sense, and I'll, and I'll get off my soapbox, but the broadest sense, the least partisan sense, I can say the least offensive sense I can say is that there are, there is a large, powerful, untransparent, 
unaccountable group of people running things. I think that that's a very safe thing to say uh, without pointing fingers or, or going down partisan crap. I'm not interested in that really right this minute. Uh, and our job, since we all swore an oath to this country, which I still hold and I still love America very much, uh, you know, and I'm not saying we go kinetic or, or go crazy or do anything illegal, not, not, not at all. But I'm just saying is, is that veterans need to keep an eye on what, where the weather is at. They need to, they need to watch because our country, and again, I'm saying this in the most basic non-confrontational terms, uh, that our country is in very much in distress and we need to be ready to assist the country. Uh, and I don't mean necessarily kinetically, but spiritually, uh, you know, with all of these different, uh, kind of like the, 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 the warrior ethos is a spiritual force. And one thing that we're completely, we've lost all is the idea of any kind of spiritual force. You, you know what I'm saying? And you can say, you can put religion in there. You can put all kinds of things in there. Uh, but, but the, the reason that, that modern man in America in particular, we're struggling with this very, very deep sense of despair. You know, and the, and the despair comes because of that we've adopted all of us to some extent, even me in a way, ways I probably don't even realize we've adopted a very materialist mindset. You, you know what I mean? It's all about right here, right this second, what's going on, uh, what I have, uh, how pissed off I am at my phone. This gets into I'm getting into your territory, I think, a little bit because I, I don't I know a little bit, but I do understand that my smartphone is sending me on a brain chemistry feedback loop where I get addicted to being pissed. I get addicted to being righteous. I do get addicted to doing all of this. And it's all being directed by uh, malign forces that I personally don't understand and can't really completely identify. And maybe you can. Um, but anyway, but yeah, that's, uh, that, that's, that's uh, this has been a very interesting year for me. And like I said, and I think that uh, you, you've got all of these different things. And I guess the, the relevant part for this discussion is that the old, the old things are fracturing, they're fragmenting. The left is fragmenting. The conservatives are fragmenting. You've got you know, the, the, old, the, the old, the GOP, the grand old party versus MAGA. You've got like neoliberalism, uh, you've got like the, the woke people, then you've got the kind of the 90s Clinton-esque people that are like, hey, you guys are screwing us. You know, you know what I mean? Like, like you guys need to reel it in, they're fighting. You know? um, and I think you can lump it all in and I will, I'm done. You lump it all in with like the yardstick is how authoritarian is the person or group I'm talking about. How much do they want to control me or my community, you know, or my culture? And then and start there and then move out from there. And if somebody is not authoritarian, you're my ally. I listen to like Anna Kashian. I listen to a lot of people that are like Joe Rogan. I like Joe Rogan. He's a total Bernie guy, you know. Uh, but I like him because he wants to have a conversation. That's why he's so famous and rich, is that he'll have anybody on the show. He'll talk about anybody, you know. Um, and, and, and he's not trying to have this regimented, politically orthodox, canned discussion, which is what we're supposed to do, you know. So anyway, maybe you, maybe you can make some, maybe you can, you, you know, feel free to edit that and, and rearrange it to be coherent, but I think I'm going to leave it. That's yeah. really good. This, this is, this is why this is important. You know, I, I'm not, you know, I, I'm only 34 and I can only analyze probably the past 15 years, you know, in a way that 
isn't yeah i don't have that much like lived experience in terms of understanding everything from like uh you know the 60s or 70s the 80s you know i i remember the 90s you know that time period the early 2000s and then up to this point and i think one of the oh jesus one of the issues is that you have this massive bombardment of information where you can't even process what's happened right where historically you were able to read a newspaper headline see something, whether it was a good or it was a bad thing, and then be able to process it, have dialogue, deliberate. And it wasn't, you know, it wasn't just this constant on and on and on and on and on where it's never, you know, shut off. Um, I've said it before. Yeah, there's, you know, uh, a deep state, right? There's someone playing the games and, and who are they, right? And I think one of the one of the things I like Daniel Schmachtenberger and Tristan Harris and some of these other folks at the Consilience Project is, is that we don't have a, a shared reality, right? We don't have a, a collective no. reality anymore. Everything is so compartmentalized to our little mini black monoliths of a phone or through laptops that are specifically designed to keep us there and entrench us there. And when something else comes into play that messes up your neurochemistry, um, your whole entire body has a has a shift, right? You either become defensive or or you open up. And the sad thing is that we can't we can't separate from this technology. This technology is here to stay. And so I've been saying it for a very long time. The American citizen or civilian, I know I, I now distinguish between whenever I come across people, I, I look at them either you're a citizen or you're a civilian, right? And the civilian war is kind of a you take on this victim identity uh, archetype and the citizen is something's wrong or something is right. I got to do something by it or I'm going to learn. I'm going to be humble about it, you know, so forth and so forth. But <clears throat> we, the, we in, in a general sense, as a result of great power competition, whatever buzzword we want to use today, we have to take on specific archetypes and we can no longer think that we're immune to uh, opposing forces across the ocean, right? We have to adopt models, models that take us out of our comfort zones, right? You can no longer sit on your couch and watch TV. Why? Because the war is on your fucking TV, right? The war is in your living room. And our complacency over the past 20 years has skyrocketed as a result of us wanting to live this kind of comfy life. And we've had to bear that burden for a very long time. It's now up to the American citizen to do their part and adopt these models. And what's the right model, right? And this is something that I've been talking with Polly about for a very long time. You know, what percentage of the population is willing to adopt a warrior archetype where they have to do their own civilian source intelligence models for their communities to see what is the right information, how that's going to affect us in a multi-tiered way, right? If... Um, one of these Russian groups tar targets the uh, pipeline. How is that pipeline going to affect my community? Where am I going to get my resources? What's that going to do to cortisol and norepinephrine levels? What's that going to do to all these vulnerable populations and how we might go about having some type of shared sense making along with a shared solution, right? I mean, this is no longer, and I personally think that 330 million people is, is too big to govern. Democracy isn't working, and if it is going to work, it's got to work in such a systematic way where people are all contributing as units to this overall thing, but we don't have a unified narrative. We don't have a unified way of saying how we could just find common ground in general. And 
I don't know where you find that because in, and this is the mimetically, right? I think that every word, every antiquated, uh, I'm in line with what you're saying. I think, <laughs> and it's not right, but when I do traverse like the political, the sociopolitical landscape, I see it as a leftist problem, right? It's like they want to erase every era of history where it's to the point where we can't even go back in history to take anecdotes. While at the same time, here we are about to repeat that same cycle as a result of this so-called social cleansing. And if I don't have the original reference to, you know, come about a solution, then, then how do we do it? Like, how do we go about it? Mm -hmm. I do have some overarching solutions. I think they're boring and I don't think they're, they're fit for today. And it requires, it requires a literal gathering of individuals to come together to create a constitution to fix our own internal problems and then go about assessing localities, states, and the nation, and then we can move forward. And, and this is kind of my problem with uh, uh, influencers and like, I don't, I don't consider myself an influencer or a brand maker, even though, yes, you know, the podcast is called O3XX series and the book that I'm writing is called O3XX, the hidden language of brotherhood and intuition. And I, and I did that for a reason. Um, we're not, we're not exclusive, right? We're inclusive of all our brothers and sisters who have worn that uniform, who have earned the EGA. And what we do with our narrative is going to determine how, how, how we, uh, essentially see ourselves in the next 40 years and right now the numbers are saying that we're, we're looking pretty low and if we're looking pretty low there goes our historical reference i think the most important history is the individual history right that's going to contribute to the overall narrative so you know so again you know the problem with i think that there's this idea of there's this mixture of uh, economical properties that have permeated and kind of uh, created this uh this fragmented idea of, of who we're supposed to be. And again, mm -hmm. you know, whenever you have one individual that takes up a large majority of influence and constituents as a result of a very large uh, issue like the fall of Afghanistan, we all get lumped into that category. And as a result of it, this individual becomes, you know, now the, the speaker for us all. And I think that's way more detrimental. And we can't move together forward without coming together and creating a constitution for our own that's in line with you know our constitutional narrative and then and then going about creating a shared reality and so long as that persists so long will our numbers and in suicides increase so long will this meta crisis increase and as a result of it and i don't you know foresee the future you know like uh, empires exist even after they fall right oh yeah like there's still some form of government uh, it's a little chaotic, uh, might be a little bit more turbulent, but something still exists. Um, and I don't feel like, you know, if the United States loses global influence, like it's not going to, I mean, it'll be somewhat chaotic, but to the point where it's like, we're cannibals and whatnot. No, uh, I think a lot of people will suffer as a result of it, but it doesn't have to happen. Right. And again, I don't, you know, again, I think the solutions to these problems is that we have to create teams that adopt these models. And then just like any other organic grassroots movement across the spectrum, whether it was the fourth philosophy, whether it was Jesus's followers and his constituents, or whether it was a law or um, Muhammad and his constituents, 
we have to begin somewhere. And I think that's where, that's where that happens. Uh, again, I'm, I'm, you know, my historical reference are within like the past like 15 years that I can properly assess. I don't think we can move forward really without understanding that we have to become trauma-informed and IO-informed, meaning there's a lot of information that's way more powerful than what we've previously thought of that are controlling uh, our behaviors. And it's engineering us into a, a kind of like docility. And that docility is, is what's gonna kill us. And the answer is we can't just turn off our phones and our, on our laptops. We have to combine these elements. Like we have to use this stuff and integrate it into more holistic things, right? Like sustainable agriculture. What does that look like for us, right? There's something uh, spiritual about that. There's something spiritual about the idea of the citizen soldier farmer that is able to produce uh, some type of sustenance, not just physically, right, nutritionally, but sp spiritually. And it provides that framework and we've removed ourselves from that type of pragmatism. And as a result of, you know, very, you know, globalization, if you want to put a word to it, globalization in a way that's kind of been good for us, but also been bad for us. So those, those are just kind of like my general thoughts. Um, you know, I have, like I said, I have like various little um, models of, of how to go about doing that. And one of them is just understanding the political landscape, not just, you know, nationally, uh, but geopolitically. Every, for every one action, there are multi-tiered actions and you have to look at what those multi-tiered actions are. You can't, it's not, you know, it's not one dimensional anymore. And, uh, yeah, um, until we can figure, you know, yeah, that's all I'm going to say uh, with regards to so that. One thing, oh, go ahead. No, 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 that, that's it. I'll just throw out, that there's a great quote by uh, Alexander Solzhenitsyn in um, his, uh, if you want a great read, uh, read his address to Harvard University in 1974, where he got booed. Um, uh, but Solzhenitsyn, um, uh, you know, like, I mean, the Gulag Archipelago is like changed my life is a, is a great book, but it is three volumes. It's, it's a freaking, it's a haul, you know, um, and a lot of the great things that Solzhenitsyn said are all, are all in that speech. So if you want to, you want to get into Solzhenitsyn without dedicating about a year of your life to reading him, even though it's very rewarding. Um, but what in the line, he says, like, he says that, that American culture believes that everybody has a right to know everything. And he says, I believe that you have the right to not know. He says that the human soul ha has, has a right to, I'm, I'm almost quoting him. He says that the, the human soul has a right to not be stuffed with gossip and, you know, and foolishness and vain talk. He says a man that leads like a serious life, like a contemplative life, doesn't need like a, a constant uh, you know, flow of information. You know? uh, so on one level, yeah, it sounds like, like a, a FUD thing to say, like, but, it, but I mean, I think you understand like the, the deeper meaning, like, you know, it's not that I want to just be ignorant, but I, I don't need this. You, you know what I'm saying? Uh, I'm a smart guy. Just give me the facts and I'll, I'll come up with my opinion. I don't need anyone else to tell me like how to process this information or what, how I should feel about this or that uh, current, you know, political situation. Uh, one thing I would throw out there. So I, I'm just saying like, Hey, Solzhenitsyn's awesome. Uh, warning to the West is good. He's very critical of the United States, but not from a, more from a like we need we need you. you you know what i mean like the world needs the more a moral 
powerful force and you, the United States, you're failing. That's kind of what he's saying. Like you're, you're letting down the world by, by, by losing the bubble on these various things. So it's a very, so it's not a negative pissy type speech. Uh, it's a very powerful speech. Um, the other thing I throw out is, and, and, it, and it's kind of esoteric, but it gets back to what could be a very, very um, concrete solution to kind of what you're talking about is that like one of the great breaks in Western civilization, uh, which I want to say will go back to the downfall of Athens, maybe. Um, but up until the the, the rise of, of Alexander the Great, the, the Greek polis, and I'm, I, I wanna, don't want to get too far out of my lane here, but like when you have like hoplites, like, you know, like the citizens were the hoplites. So it, it, with, the, with, the, with Athens, I guess Sparta had a king, uh, but with Athens, the, the political, and this, you'll see instantly what I'm talking about, the political and the violent forces were the same thing. They were, they were inseparable. A state's ability to exert force on a situation militarily was one and the same with the people voting. Like, you see what I'm saying? And Heinlein kind of touches on this a little bit in like, uh, in Starship Troopers. Um, now, obviously this is unfeasible for a lot of reasons. Uh, for one thing, like America's huge, like you said. For another thing, you, you're, you're kind of veering out of constitutional territory here. But where I think the, the germ of the idea that might help and I'm just, I'm just totally freaking running, running off, you know, uh, it's something like sports clubs, you know, like, you, you know, like, like, re, like, like regionalized veterans clubs that are not two things. They're not explicitly therapeutic, which I'm not, obviously I'm, I'm hundred percent for that, but I'm just like, we have ther therapeutic organizations that the organization will be therapeutic by its activities and what it does. And then the other, and the other thing would be completely rigorously, insanely anti and apolitical. No, no politics. Period. Ever. Like you, you know what I mean? As like, as like an internal rule. And basically, like, and I'm again, I'm just blue skying. You know, you have a, like a local group, and they freaking clear brush after there's a, th a thunderstorm. They work out. They have an MMA club. They, you, you know what I'm saying? They organize like hunts for disabled people you see what i'm saying and i know that some of this already exists but i'm talking about like a, a broad like regional and national movement which which would have like all of kind of the positive effects of the weimar era paramilitary things with none of the none of the the politicized uh negative effects you see where it's all the fellowship all the brotherhood all the shared stuff directed outward uh, Tom, I think he was working with a thing where it's very similar, like, you know, with horses, like where, you know, like, you know, guys can come out and you can ride horses because riding horses is therapeutic. So, and, and again, I'm not saying this is like a, an original idea, uh, but I'm just saying like some, something that sidesteps uh, like political, you know, kerfuffles and, and, and furballs uh, and doesn't get sidetracked and something that is therapeutic because it's not therapeutic like if that makes sense it's like 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 something that if you need therapy and you need mental health then you know you know we'll help you go to the, those places but we're here to actually do stuff now obviously the stuff that we do will be therapeutic so the therapy is, is baked in um like very briefly to go back like 
where the, where the US military got it right, and you'll recall, is when you deploy, what do you do? You sit in a freaking camp, like in Leatherneck, you know, or Kuwait, you sit there for like a month, then you go in, you operate, you do your thing, the deployment's over, you come back, and you just, and everybody just chills, and they watch movies, like up on a screen, they hang out, they talk. The way that they did it in Vietnam was a one-for-one -one personnel system, as you well know. You come in, you're the new guy, you're the liability, everybody takes a crap on you, whatever. Over the course of your one-year tour, you prove yourself. And right as you like come to maturity, you go home, you know, and then you go home, uh, like, and you get dropped off at a bus stop in Kenosha. You, you know what I mean? And then you go get a job and you go on with your life and everything. And, and, and if anything, the reason that the whole Vietnam generation was kind of effed up was because they were completely set up to fail. They were atomized. You, you know, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. They were, yeah. they were moved through in a, in a way where there was no solidarity. And the way that we did it, I thought was very good and very effective because the best therapy that you can have when you're coming down from something like that is just a bunch of guys. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Just a bunch of guys freaking laying around, talking, watching a movie. You, you know what I mean? That type of thing. And so for about a month, on, at least on my deployments I went on, there was always that depressurization. And, and I thought that was very smart. And it's like they looked at the Vietnam playbook. We're like, no, we're going to do the exact opposite. You, you, you know what I mean? Of that. Um, and not like just now, of course, not, I mean, it ends there. Uh, and it doesn't extend out into the civilian world. But I'm just saying, at least within a deployment cycle, I think that that showed a lot of foresight because that's when the people really need the trauma care. And like I said, unless you've got something acute going on, the best kind of trauma is just to freaking hang with guys that just did it, that just did it with you, you know? So anyway, that's just, just an idea um, uh, that kind of jives with what you're saying. And, and I think that something like this, like on a, on a grand scale can give veterans that, that sense of mission and unity. Um, you know, which, which is sorely lacking. Uh, so. Yeah. I've written, uh, I like writing sci-fi. Uh, you know, that's kind of like my future strategy. Right. Um, and one of the things that I wrote was creating a centers of excellence, right. For every unit, right. Like having a Victor two weight center of excellence where you do all these things that enhance your life without making them, you know, oh, this is this type of therapy and you're going to go to this. No, it's just a center where you improve human development. And I think that's kind of what we're lacking. And, you know, if I ever became rich and wealthy, that's what I would do. Mm -hmm. um, also kind of like reshaping the way we do our uh, process. I know, like, I think one of the, one of the cool things about the, the delayed entry program was you had the opportunity to go in with a buddy, you know, if you got him to sign up. And uh, I wish they would reframe where you would go in with a group, you stay with that group, and then you make a commitment, right? The contracts either become longer or the contracts, you know, get to a point where it's like you establish a baseline with these individuals and you get out together. Um, and I know that's, there's a lot of oddities with that. And I've talked with a buddy of mine who said doing that might be way more detrimental especially if it became, you know, if the conflict was just too much where everybody died and only a few remained, you know, how that would just be disastrous for the soul. Uh, and I thought about all those things, 
And of course it takes hardcore uh, grouping together and coordinating and implementing. And I think, again, you know, I think that maybe one day I don't ever foresee myself becoming wealthy or some big ass influence or anything like that. Uh, but creating those kinds of, I guess, dreams through the scope of writing would probably be, be better off. And then I know uh, as time as, you know, a lot of folks are now moving to like the urban littoral sectors around the globe. I think that's where, you know, well, that's where the last, I think, uh, renaissances are going to be because that's where the resources are going to be. And I'm not too sure how, you know, the scope of climate change or whether people want to believe in that or not, or just geopolitical issues. Um, but I do think that salvaging some of our historical uh, past, such as understanding the way water energy uh, works, would be very, very good for our population, because we have the capabilities of organizing and then conducting that type of work. And so it has to remain somewhat uh, alive. And uh, the only way to do it is by implementing people that know how to do that type of work. And I find, you know, great joy in that work. And I always tell Polly one day, you know, I just plan on becoming a farmer and, and just writing shit. But that's whenever the, you know, the fight's over and of course sure. the fight's never over, but I do think that we can get to a point where we can stabilize and, you know, that's the fight. Uh, but, but it, uh, no, no, I actually, I live in a nice little house <laughs> and, uh, you know, and uh, it's, it's really weird. It actually, I'll, I'll go like a little bit psychological with it. Um, cause in, in, you know, I won't go through depression stuff just like everybody. And I was talking to my wife about it because my dream was to always like, okay, get out, you know, get a job. And then eventually I wanted to retire back here, you know, this because this is where I grew up. And after some missteps, um, I, and I, my first real big boy job out of the Marine Corps was here. So I came, I came home. My dad, that's a kind of a long story. I won't go into it, but I went into the FBI thing, the DEA thing. And, um, and it was, it was like, it was a very kind of a painful process because I was on, the, I, there was a hiring freeze, went on forever. I took the, the phase one exam, I took the PFT for the FBI. Um, and then I, uh, and then I put in for the DEA. And this sounds like it's going to be sad, but it's good. So basically, and I don't hear anything. And then they're like, well, my degree is in, is in the Bible, it's in theology, because I was going to go in the ministry. And they're like, we really can't use a Bible degree. They're like, but have you got any like, like law enforcement or military experience? It's like, oh yeah, you know. So this uh, a local like they have the HRT in Quantico, then they have regional SWAT. So regional SWAT FBI guy calls me up. He goes, he drills in like, what kind of what, like, did you ever shoot anybody? When? What was it? What'd you do? What'd you do that? And chapter and verse. So I get it back, and uh, and they're like, we reviewed it, and you, you're not you're not eligible for the tactical program. I was really surprised, like, whoa, you guys got some freaking meat-eating Navy SEALs up in there if I'm not good enough, but it is what it is. And so, and I felt very relieved because my dad had developed dementia, you know. So my dad's got like bad dementia. He, he, he's dead. He died a few years ago, but at the time. So he was going down the dementia thing with my mom, you know, trying to help doing all that stuff. So I was like, you know, this, this really works out for the best because I wanted to be like a, a federal cowboy uh, 
but I would have certainly, I would have to move back to Quantico uh, with either because the DEA and the FBI are both in Quantico. And then, I, and then I'd be posted wherever, wherever they send me. And so, and I really need to be here with them. So this all worked out great. So then fat, like two days later, I get a call. Hey, we made a huge mistake. Uh, like <laughs> you're totally eligible for the tactical thing. Like we just got our wires crossed. When can you come in? You know what I mean? And do the thing, you know? And I thought about it. I was like, like, I'm, you, you just scrub me for like friggin' personal stability reasons. I can't do it, you know? And so they were like, you know, okay. You know, and so that was it. That was the end of the FBI. And I was like, man, that was really hard. But like, I know I did the right thing. I'm here for my, my dad. You know, my mom needs me. I already did this thing for like 10 years with everybody at my beck and call when I'm on deployments and all of this stuff. And so I was like, so it, I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah, I'm good with this. Then the phone rings, it's the DEA. <laughs> the DEA is like, hey man, when are you ready? Like, let's go. Like, you, you know, like we're, we looked at your freaking jacket, you know, we're anyway. And literally I was just like, no, I can't do it. You, you know what I mean? I was just like, I'm, I'm very, very sorry. I'm not trying to jerk you guys around. Just take me off. You know, well, you understand that. Like, I understand perfectly. You know, you do what you got to do. So I told my wife, she's like, what was that all about? I was like, well, I was like, dad better know that I love him because I just put like my, my, my professional plans on their knees. Like when and I executed it one at a time, you know? Um, but I mean, obviously it was, it hurt, but it was, it was obviously the right, the right thing to do. And as time went on, I did it, but I did it kind of on principle, but then it turned out it like, it got way worse. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like if I had proceeded with any of this stuff, I would have had to come home. You know what I mean? So I just saved myself a trip uh, by, by, uh, you know, uh, by, by staying here and, and taking care of him. And, um, anyway, I, I, I mean, I, that, maybe that's kind of a bum out story. I don't mean it as a bum out story. Uh, it, it was just this thing that happened. Um, but, you know, like we said at the very beginning of the discussion, uh, I'm confident, you know, and also too, like, like looking at what's going on now, I don't want to be the FBI, like the FBI blows, like, you know what I'm saying? Uh, like, you, you know, like, what am I going to do? I'm going to go like, like, like hide some dead hooker for some congressman now. Cause that's what they do. It's, it's really sad. Um, but anyway, but, uh, that's, that's kind of how it played out. But, uh, while you were gone, we were talking about, you know, pressure, like urine, urine pressure on your prostate, uh, yeah, that, don't hold you, you. Know, has long, long-term effects. Don't yeah. do that. <laughs> I just told him a story, there, there, a story there, about there, how I had to pee real bad. <laughs> So I don't do, I try to not do that. Yeah. I try to be as disciplined as possible. <laughs> <laughs> no, man. I, I tell stories about my dysentery days, especially when we did the, uh, you know, the invasion, how uh, our, fir my first patrol out. Um, so July 4th, we're at OP shithole and uh, the CEO gets everyone a kebab and soda. My dumb ass eats the fucking kebab and man, it is just horrible. I'm pissing out my ass on my patrol. I'm telling my squad leader, hey, man, let's take a hold. And then I'm like, no, we better not. I don't want to get sniped out, taking a shit, you know. So the entire time, I'm just literally pissing out of my ass, and it's just going down my legs. And I'm just like, fuck. Oh, man. Yeah. yeah the, like, the whole true. company the whole company got it, or the whole two, half the company anyway is bad. I feel yeah. like that's not a real deployment, though, if something like that doesn't happen. Oh, yeah. yeah. Everybody's got to get messed up. Oh, God. Yeah. yeah I had so. an ugly American moment. Uh, 
this, this is actually makes me not look cool, but it is kind of funny. Like we were just south of Anezria, about to push into Anezria in 2003. You know, like the whole battalion, like 40 something LAVs, and we got a platoon of tanks in the lead. Um, anyway, and like I got to pee, like, you know, just this exact situation. And, you know, and it's like one of those things, like you don't have to pee until it's uh, wild turkey. Uh, you know, which is like, like, you know, it's all around radio check. All right. Hey, we're, we're rolling. Now I got to go, you know? And so like, literally I get a water bottle. Uh, I like pour, I pour it out and I tell my gunner, you know, I'm in the VC hatch and he's in the, he's in his gunner seat. I'm like, Hey dude, you, you might not want to look over here. Cause I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to take a leak. All right. So unless you want to freaking see my junk, you know, you know, just don't, don't look. And literally like I freaking fill that bottle up. I mean, like a big water bottle, fill it all the way up. And so now like, what am I going to do with this? Okay. I'm not proud of this, but I do think it's funny. And you can just say it's effed up, but there's all these crowds of Iraqis, right? They're around us. They're jumping up and down. They're going Saddam, Saddam. They're making like throat cutting gestures, USA, USA. And so I like freaking haul and I chuck that piss bottle and I see way off in the, in the crowd, this dude come up and freaking get it. Cracks it anyway, open. Yeah. He freaking fielded it. And oh. I was just like, you know, Hey, I'm part, I'm part of what's wrong with what's wrong with America in the world and right now, you know, I'm, I'm throwing urine bottles to the, to the crowd that we're liberating, but Hey, you know what I'm saying? I'm sorry, you know? Uh, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. Things, I, I things, <laughs> things like that will happen in a combat zone. Yeah. That's, that's the PG version too. Cause there's some <laughs> R rated stuff out there too. Well, freaking uh, two, two had a freaking shootout. Uh, right, you know, the, the, right there in the district center. Yeah. Uh, yeah. which, which like, remember Colonel Cabinets would, he took John Kerry down there. yippee do look how peaceful everything is. We left. I don't know what they did, but that like the district center was like, went to hell in a handbasket. Yeah. They two two in, in Afghanistan, when they, after they ripped us out, there was, we in Fox's AO on the PB line, my, the platoon I was with was down at, uh, at Masood was the name of it and uh we myself and and sergeant g my squad leader went down because we had left that to the estonians when we pulled up to help mm-hmm. and uh two two when they came in they you know reoccupied Masood. so myself and sergeant g went down to uh back to Masood to kind of you know show the guys the ao down there that we were operating in and i remembered there was a squad leader and some fire team leaders that you know we we got to know pretty good we stayed down there for like a week or so when i got back i forget i was in the mcx or whatever and i saw two of the guys from that squad and this was like not they weren't even like we weren't even home for like a month yet and they were already back there got blown up you know and they're like they were like, it was bad. Like, I think they had it really bad after we mm-hmm. left. Um, I don't know how or why. Like, I don't un- really understand those dynamics and how that works because it was getting ready to get into the, you know, the winter season anyway. Yeah, yeah. And that's usually when the fighting chills out. But, like, they – I guess they knew that it was a new unit coming in mm-hmm. and, and they just yeah. let them – they let them have it. But, yeah, crazy times, so though. I was – really surprised to see those guys at the px when you know i'm like what do you wait what like i couldn't was kind of shocked that it was those same guys and they were like 
I could see it in their faces. And I was like, oh, man, like you guys just you probably weren't ready yet, but. It's hard to. Yeah, I had a thing just kind of like one of these crazy stories, like an officer story thing. I'll keep it very quick. Uh, but, um, you know, like you go to war and you meet people, you know, you're like, hey, it's so and so you see somebody and in candidate school. This guy was he was he scored number one. He was like in the like the one to 247 thing. And he gets in. And so he picked uh, tanks. So he was a tank platoon commander. And uh, the big the first fight that I was in actually in and was the, the Battle of the Coil north of Nazaria that night. Um, anyway, where the, like all the second LAR just wagon wheeled and then just got hit all night long. Boop, boop, over here, over there, called in sections of Cobras. Uh, you know, that's kind of a long story in and of itself. Uh, but then it was like a couple of days, but the, the tanks were up at the at the north end of the coil and route at the yeah, route seven coming up from Nazaria and going north uh, all the way up to I think Al Kut. But anyway, um, so this dude, he was in there and uh and I was just talking to him. I was like, how how was it how was it for the tanks? You know, uh, because I mean, I mean literally. I'm not going to get R-rated, but like that was my like baptism of, fi of fire when I got out of my vehicle. And I mean, my, my role in the actual shooting that night was very small. Uh, but when I got out of my LAB the next day, I, I like I walked like a couple of feet and I looked down, and there was an ear. There was a human ear sitting on the ground by my boot. And that was like the, my first moment of like real like, like this is this is this is real. This is not bullshit. You know, this is the real thing. Um, but like there, like there was zero casualties for America. And like, depending on your sources, like 400 KIA, I mean, it's just like a complete freaking, like just a massacre, you know? So I go up and I talk to this dude uh, the, uh, who's the platoon commander. And I was like, man, that was some wild and crazy stuff, man. Like, he was like, yeah. He said, I got up in my cupola, you know, he's up in the, the you know, he says, he goes, and like dabs is like, I don't know where they got all these guys. He's like, I just kept shooting, you know? And he said, I got, I kept shooting until I got sick of shooting. You know, I got sick of shooting these guys. Damn. So I let everybody in the tank come up to the cupola and, and shoot. And it was kind of like, and, and one after another, they kept, they just kept freaking hosing these Fedeen that just kept coming and coming and coming. And this is at night, right? I could go into details. I won't, but it's like, they had no concept of night vision. You know what I mean? They were just like walking right into the guns, you know? Oh, and geez. the, he said, and so in my crew, one and you know, one after another, they get up there. Yeah, all right, man, I'm getting the freaking getting some trigger time. And then after he said like 15, 20 minutes, like, ah, you know, f this, I'm I'm good. I don't I don't need it anymore. You know. Anyway, and so and that's like you know what I'm saying. He cycled through his entire crew, and he's and, and he told me he's like I'm not. He, he just said like I'm. I mean, he says I'll be okay tomorrow, but not I'm done for today. Yeah, you know, you know, you know, it's like he's like I'm not gonna kill anybody else today. I'm done. You know. Wow. And. Um, and that was the only reason I mentioned that is that, like, generally, like, that's not our thing as officers. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? Um, you know, generally, we're not in the, the position that you guys are in to, to really, like, 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 you know, like, friggin' rub knuckles, you know. Um, but uh, but that, that story really stuck with me. I was like, dang, dude, you know. Uh, and because I, and the funny thing was, was that he had been, he, he was a Mustang. He had been an enlisted guy. He was an E5 in second LAR. He'd actually been in second LAR. And then he, uh, you know, went across the line, became an officer, got went tanks, and then he got attached to our the second LAR. And uh, anyway, so that that was that was just that's that story. It didn't happen to me, but it really kind of stuck with me, you know. 
And it's interesting going back in history because you can read about World War I, like the battles of Verdun, the Battle of the Somme, and it, usually it's the German side where German machine gunners tap out, you know, where they're just like, I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm, I'm not killing anyone else. I quit, you know, because it was just that because of the tactics employed, it was just a complete slaughter. You know what I mean? It wasn't even really like a stand-up fight. It was just guys running across football fields getting shot and, uh, and then, and then uh, re reaching the max of what they could, they could stand, which I'm not trying to be like morbid. Um, no, but I just, it was just very interesting to have that conversation with that, that, buddy of mine you know yeah i can't imagine that what what that would be like you know when, when you're fighting somebody but there's really no it's not a fight it's just a it's just target practice or whatever except you know real time so um gosh yeah yeah that's <laughs> that's heavy that's heavy uh, that's a lot and i would imagine you know i i'm no I'm no psychologist or anything, but I would imagine like at the same time, is that like, not the point though, you know, like that is the enemy. Right. But it's just like, there's no fight. So what is like, what is that? Do, do you think that's like a, like an internal mechanism? You know what I'm saying? Like um, I know Grossman has been uh, critiqued a lot, especially uh, some of his stuff in on killing and on combat were, you know, um, how soldiers were trained um, from back then, vice, you know, moving into the Vietnam Gulf War era with silhouette targets, and we're a lot more trained now to uh, to do that type of work. Um, like, is that like an internal thing? You know, like are humans not designed to do that? I mean, you know what I'm saying? I think you hit on it earlier, just a minute ago. Is that I think it's about it's about the the, the circumstances, uh, and I think that if if it's and Grossman talks about uh, mechanical distance. Um, and again, Grossman is, is kind of controversial, but I read on Killing when it first came out and people forget like when, like you can say what you want about Grossman, but Grossman was like it, like when he came out, that was like a revolutionary book. Now there had been SLA Marshall, but nobody outside of like War College ever read SLA Marshall. And then he also, and, and Grossman like quotes SLA Marshall a lot in on Killing. Uh, and then Marshall was the guy that came up with the whole thing about which people have disputed that you know, like 80 something percent didn't fire their weapons in World War II and, and stuff like that. And, and that started down the, tra the trail of operant conditioning. You, you know what I mean? And, and I, like training people, you know, to, to shoot. But he said that, that like that trauma is a function of distance, which makes perfect sense if you think about it. Because a guy like a guy on a B-17 who drops like a string of bombs, you know, into like freaking Schweinfurt and like wax out like 700 factory workers but it's like that's nothing and then the guy like if you read with the old breed where you got these japanese infiltrators coming in and you have these like horrible horrifying fights where where like one one battle buddy's holding the guy and the other battle buddy's freaking whacking them out you know that's that's the real like trauma you know um and i think that the 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 the, the enemy is is a function of trauma too uh, I was just actually talking about that with my son. I was giving him kind of the, the PG-13 version, but I was talking about the difference between the European and the Pacific theaters and how they were two totally different psychological, cultural things. Because don't get me wrong, I'm not saying like, oh yeah, no, the European theaters sucked, you know, and they were fighting very, very professional, very tough guys. But you know what you didn't see in the European theater? 
you never saw like an American serviceman keep a German skull, you know, you never saw a German, a, a, an American serviceman have like a freaking bone, like a tooth necklace or all the effed up stuff that they did in the Pacific, which I'm not, I'm not saying that in a judgmental way. That's precisely my point is that the, the Pacific conflict was, uh, you know, it was against like just people that didn't look like them, you know, and they were also, uh, they, they fought with a brutality uh, that the Germans did not fight with until the Battle of the Bulge, which I won't chase that historical rabbit hole, but they really, like the, the German army really kind of fought like gentlemen on, on the Western front. The Eastern front was a war of complete annihilation both ways from the, the Bolsheviks and the, uh, but, but specifically if you read about like the, the, Mal, the, the massacre at Malmedy, uh, all of that stuff, that uh, uh, Joaquin Piper, who was uh, uh, one of the battalion commanders of the SS, you know, he specifically said, we're fighting this like we're fighting the Russians. The Battle of the Bulge is going to be an Eastern Front battle. And so they did what they did in the Eastern Front. Once we got too many POWs, we'll kill them. And they murdered, I think it's like 83 something American prisoners, you know, and just machine gunned them and stuff. So obviously, and I'm going somewhere with this, when that gets out, what happens? They're like, it, like and you can read different battle accounts. And they're like after the, they discovered the, the, the dead men at Malmody, they're like anybody with a freaking SS uniform gets whacked. That's it. Like, we, like we're not taking any more prisoners, you know, because they had that distinctive camouflage. And they're like, if we, and, and if, if anybody gives up, they were shot out of hand. And so just take that and put that on steroids for the entire theater for the duration of the war with the Japanese, you know. And so you see just like, I mean, really, if you like delve into it, uh, like even if you're kind of hardened to this stuff and, and kind of callous, you'll still be shocked. You know what I mean? It's some of the stuff that, that went on, you know, which I don't say like with my panties in a bunch. I'm just saying it because I'm, I'm interested in exploring like, why was that? Why did we fight one way here and we fought another way here? And some of it was because the enemy behaved a certain way and we responded. But part of it was, I don't want to say like racism specifically, but, but basically sort of the, the, the other, the alien, the German looks very much like us. The Japanese, not only do they not look like us, they don't speak our language. When they catch us, they mutilate us. You know, they kill prisoners, yeah. you know, they blah, 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 blah. And so that unleashed uh, a level of, of, of savagery, uh, you know, on the part of the, the Marines in the Pacific uh, that is really, uh, and again, I, I say this without any judgmentalness, uh, I mean, it's like medieval, like, you, you, know, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's like, we're, we're going back to like, like, like apes in Africa killing each other 10,000 BC. Um, and it's all, and it's all a result of the way that the, these two cultures interacted and didn't interact uh, physically and tactically and all of that stuff. So anyway, that always, that difference always interested me. And also too, because that part, that's part of our story as Marines. You know, um, and it's a story, and I don't say that not farthest thing from pissing contest, chest thumping, uh, but that's not the story of the army. The army doesn't tell that story, you know, um, and it's kind of like Band of Brothers versus the Pacific. They're both very good, but they're both very different. What's the Band of Brothers about? Band of Brothers, it's about us, you know, you know, we few, we happy few. What's the Pacific about? It's about like a bunch of isolated like, like, you know, like lonely, emotionally scarred killers. You, you know what I mean? Um, I was watching, uh, now I, you know, I won't go, it's too depressing, just forget it. But anyway, but yeah, but it's very bracing. Um, 
And if you watch uh, Eugene Sledge, who he went on to be an ornithology professor at Auburn University, he was from Alabama. And uh, watching his interviews are really something else, you know. Um, but also, too, I do get the feeling that he likes to shock people. That's my theory. You know, you know, what I mean, he, know, he uh, seriously, it's kind of funny. Like he knows who he's talking to. And I think that even though it doesn't come across, you know, uh, he, he knows that he's he's horrifying these academics that are interviewing him about the war. And I think he probably gets off on it somehow. But anyway. Uh, no, I, I uh, recently learned yeah, about a, a baton death march and uh, James Bollock's book. Uh, and geez, I, 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 you know, well, it's kind of a funny thing. I, I've gotten a lot more emotional in terms of like, um, just, just a lot more vulnerable, right? Uh, and I, that kind of happened when my son was born. I started getting these feelings that I've never had, like I have, I did not have in a very, very long time. And and now whenever I, I you know, listen to or hear some of this stuff, man, I just like, geez, like it, it doesn't bother me. It's just, I understand that reality exists. And uh, James Bollock's story going through the Baton Death March and then having to live in those camps and then having to be sent to, um, was it Korea? And then I didn't realize that the Japanese were uh, doing experiments on um, oh, yeah. American soldiers yeah, in Nigeria. I did not know that. I thought that was like strictly a German thing. And uh, anyway, so it's just a it, it, it's just a crazy thing to me that that occurred. And I understand, you know, like why some of these things take place on the battle on the battle space. Um, not to. Uh, like when we got in uh, Afghanistan, Karizi Sahidi in 2011, uh, there was a, a massive airstrike that killed a bunch of Taliban. And some of the dudes from uh, the uh, unit that we were ripping with, and I won't, you know, I won't name them, but uh, they ended up taking souvenirs, you know, from from the Taliban. And these dudes like legitimately fucking hated these guys. Like they hated the Taliban with the passion, and you could see it in their face. And that's one thing. One of the things that I noted. And I talked with like the other guys is like, you could see it on their fucking face. And I just, that always stuck with me. Like they had a human skull in, in the PB from some of those airstrikes because of the toll of how the Taliban operated, especially with IEDs. And we're familiar with what IEDs can do, especially to our own. Yeah, it kind of makes me wonder. I mean, I might be ignorant to this, but if, you know, the development of weaponry and everything, do, do you think that's in part, like, to give us the ability to kill people at distance? Because we don't want to experience that, you know, up close and, and personal type of trauma from, like, past wars? Like, do you think, that, I, I know that's, it's, the whole idea is just to have the most effective weapons on the battlefield you know, to do that job, but almost all of them are, you know, to give you more distance, more advantage to kill somebody, but then you also don't experience, you know, it up close and personal. Like, do you think that that's kind of like a subconscious, you know, reason for, for why weapons have got, you know, like we heard about when we were, when we were there in 09, and I'm sure, you know, any drones that were flown as far as the Reaper drones go, like we heard that the, the operators were in Florida 
that were flying those things. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you know, like we're talking about killing the, the distant trauma is your distance from the enemy. Well, you know, and then of course you hear about those guys having issues as well, which I'm not saying that, that they wouldn't, cause they're still, that would, that would almost be, that would be something hard to deal with. I think as a person that's not even in the theater you know, not even exposed, and then you're just clocking in, clocking out, you know, taking lives on your shift, and then it's a weird, weird thing. I would throw out that you see that with, uh, like, the border war in Angola uh, in the uh, 80s with the South Africa fighting in Angola, and uh, they, you know, they had, like, regular troops, but then they had these dudes on call-up, and, like, the back and forth was crazy. Uh, and they had a lot of, 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 of psych and PTSD issues because of exactly what you're saying. Because, because like, like these deployments were like mini deployments. And this is like a National Guard unit, like deploying to like a really hardcore jungle, well, not jungle, but bush warfare environment, literally for like maybe a few weeks and then coming right back. And then a couple of weeks go by, you go and you come right back. And I think that that, if there's any kind of trauma, and, I, and I, obviously I don't have any firsthand experience, is like when you're in, in, you know, the trauma would be kind of what you just touched on, which is like, I'm out here, I'm, and I'm flying my friggin' remote drone from Colorado or Florida, and I'm friggin' like, you know, I'm attacking targets, um, which especially uh, during kind of the, the Obama years of uh, Mark Bowden, who wrote uh, Black Hawk Down, uh, wrote a long article, I think in the Atlantic, uh, and it was about the drone program and how there's a, an immense amount of collateral damage with, with the drone program. Because these dudes, like 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 Bin Laden, they're all, they're always going to you know like if you were me, like if we knew the CIA was trying to smoke us, what would you do? You would go you'd go hide. Like I don't want my family around. Well, not these guys, of course. They they take their family everywhere, and then they get their family gets smoked because you know because jackass, I guess, just doesn't care if his wife or kids get killed. But the what you just said about clocking in and clocking out, I think that's that's the key, because like. You're, you know, you're doing this thing and then you like go home and run by freaking little Caesars and, you know, get, you know, get a pizza and go and then you're back, you know, vice like your experience and my experience where you go, you get into this headspace, you get, you do this thing, you got a job to do, blah, blah, blah. You do it, you you wrap it up, cool off and you go back, you know. Um, And I do think, and I'm kind of jumping ahead to something that you had on your thing about the future fighting force. Um, It's like, and like, I want to really stay in my lane because I don't know a lot about what's going on right now in terms of like technology and, and, and things like that. I've been out of the loop for quite, quite some time, but you do notice if you're a military history nerd, that, that certain patterns keep happening and certain mistakes get made again and again, like right now, special operations, snipers, Navy SEALs, that's all really cool. Right. But if you look at the history of special operations, what did they do? We're having a war, crap, we need special operations. They build it, they employ it, war's over, you guys are all fired. Like, you know, go back to your units, you know? And then here comes the war, ah, shoot, we need snipers again. Hey, like go, and you have like World War One. if you look at, uh, I mean, World War II, uh, was a guy, uh, uh, Jim Land, I don't remember, but he was like going down to the, the, the Quickie Mart and buying Winchester Model 70s, you, you know what I mean? Like from the, from the outdoor store, you know? Mountain scopes and coming up with a sniper program again. And what I think you'll see, whatever shape that this technology takes, which I freely 
express my ignorance. Uh, you're going to see that the, the 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 mistake of the, the of misunderstanding that you need infantry to occupy space. It does not matter how you employed like these weapon systems. Which, as an aside, I would say I'm kind of pessimistic. I don't think they ever gave a crap. And and I think that if there if there was any concern about mechanical distance and trauma, it was purely accidental. I'm just saying that's that's my opinion. Uh, and and I, and I can't back that up. That's just me talking out my rear. <laughs> Uh, but the uh, let's just say we got friggin' phase plasma rifle, 40 watt range, super stuff. You know, you're still going to need people to go in and occupy. You're still going to need people to go in and make like physical contact with the enemy in some way, shape or form. Um, and, and that's the kind of thing that if you want those people, you're going to have to have that ethos. And, and, and I promise you, I'm not trying to be political. I'm just going where it leads, is you have to have a culture that builds the ethos and an organization that builds the ethos. Uh, and that has to come from a certain set of values, some kind of values, uh, but not cutting edge American values. Uh, you can't use the, the postmodern whatever values and, and build a Marine. The reason that, and, and that's something that I noticed that I was very impressed with, is we talk about like, Oh, the greatest generation. Look, they did. They fought the Nazis. They did all this stuff. And they were so tough because they came from the Great Depression, you know, and they were working in slaughterhouses and working on the in the coal mine. And then they strapped on their packs and defeated Hitler. I'm not saying any of that isn't true. But what impressed me, I was like, look at this generation. Like they're sitting on the couch, stuffing their face with Twinkies, playing Nintendo. But they go through boot camp and they come out and they perform every bit as good, if not better. You, you know what I mean? Without that hardening program. And the reason is because the system that makes Marines and trains infantrymen is that freaking good, you know, um, uh, which is scary if you think about it, because when you're involved in it, it's easy to see the mistakes and the screw ups. But if you look at the, the, the product over a long period of time, you can't argue, you know, with it that, it, that, that Marines, like you're saying about Afghanistan, just like Vietnam, we never lost a freaking battle in Vietnam. And I would have to sit here and really think we lost a battle in Afghanistan, you know, like like every type of like tactical contact where they stood up to fight, they got blitzed. And, and I might be wrong, but I guarantee you if I'm wrong, I'm wrong like here, here and here. I'm not wrong like across the board. Um, and, the, and then that the, that the catastrophic end of the situation came all in the headspace of American citizens and the political side. So to kind of put a bow on, on that thought is that regardless of where the technology leads us, if we don't uh, have a culture that even if it doesn't understand it, even if it doesn't like it, if you don't like the Marine Corps values, if you don't like, if it makes you sad that somebody screamed in somebody's face or somebody got, you know, like, you know, had to eat dust bunnies or something like that, that's fine. Just stay out of it. Just stay away from it. You don't have to like it, but leave it alone. It's got nothing to do with you, you know, and it's an important, it's not just crap for the sake of crap. There's a, there's a product here. They've been doing it for like two centuries. They know what they're doing. Like just freaking just, just go away. Um, and the success of the infantry Marine or otherwise is going to depend if they, if they freaking go away or not, or if they come in and they get their hooks into this too. Um, and I say this, uh, and I know I'm preaching to the choir, but like these type of people, and I like across the board, any type of like career, careerist, political bureaucrat class type person, 
like like literally the like in a movie you're screwing with something you cannot possibly understand you don't understand the gravity of it you can't relate to it so all of us are served better if you just 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 detach and let us do our thing and I, and like i said at the beginning i'm amazed and i'm very happy but i'm also very surprised that we've been left alone uh, for as long as we have there was a push after world war ii to disband the marine corps i'm sure you know that was why the, the famous line about when they raised the flag on Surabachi, somebody said they just guaranteed the Marine Corps for another like 200 years, you know. And, uh, but there's always a push. There's always been a historical push to dissolve the Marine Corps and spend all of that money, like having a great, they're like, what do the Marines bring to the table? You know, um, you know, that attitude, that bureaucratic attitude. But anyway, um, but that's, that's kind of, kind of my take. I'm kind of jumping ahead to that future fighting force. I want to play to my strengths here. Uh, and not pretend I know about what's going on now, but basically just like look to the past and see like, where did we F up? Because we do, we, we F up the same way again and again and again. So how are we going to F up this time? Uh, and the doing the jungle warfare training center in Australia, that's freaking brilliant. You know, that's a good, that's an example. I don't know how they're executing down there, but the idea is great. Cause what do we got? We have a generation of desert warriors. We've got a generation of, of mountain warriors of mount and urban warriors, you know, and so, you know, the whole culture is centered around this type of fighting. So what's the next war going to be? What if it's in a freaking jungle? What if it's in the Arctic? And the fact that the Marine Corps had the presence of mind to be like, hey, let's go ahead and freaking set up and tee up fighting in jungles, you know, instead of just being like, we're masters of freaking fighting in, in high desert and in, the, and in cities and stuff like that. So that's an example of, of, of good institutional uh, thought uh, that doesn't fall into these these perpetual traps that I'm referring to that go back through the history of the American military. So, yeah, I, I have a buddy who was in the invasion. He was an RP though, not, not to like under, you know, value what he did or anything like that, but I'm fascinated. I'm just fascinated by it. Um, Cause they're, they're guys are like dinosaurs. You guys are like rare, right? You, no one, there's, there's not that many invasion guys. Like it's funny. I was talking to my buddy. He came over last night and I was telling him, how the the school where I work it's ran by a bunch of like Marines and uh, Army vets and uh, the National Guard. We're always getting kids to like sign up. We're doing it. We're basically doing his job, but he loves it. <laughs> and he's a staff sergeant in the National Guard. But when he talks to me, he talks to me at parade rest. And I'm like, <laughs> like I'm the like you know I'm like the old man telling the war yeah. stories now. And it, it is just so funny that that it's it's turning I'm like I'm only 34 you know and, and this guy anyway it's just a it's a funny thing but um, whenever I tell him that I have buddies that you know were in the invasion and to me it's common because you know I'm still immersed in the culture and whatnot these guys are like whoa can I touch him you know can I touch his arm <laughs> you know it's like <laughs> you can't find these guys anywhere and it's true man I remember because you know when I went through SY it was nothing but one five marines that had done you know uh, Operation Phantom Fury, and these guys were fucking hardcore. Mm-hmm. And then here it is, like in 2018, I'm, I'm operating in, in Kabul, and uh, one of the paramedics that's on my on my team, he's a one two marine that did Operation Phantom Fury, and I'm like, holy shit! Like this is like before it was very common. Now it's just becoming very uncommon. I don't know where these guys are going. What's happening to them? And so, I, you know, I want to pick up the pieces of, of that particular history just because, you know, I was part of it, you know, very small part of it. 
and uh, I think there's a lot of uh, good that could come from it and just recreate, not recreating, but kind of immersing ourselves back into the narrative of, of, you know, this is what it was and this is how we interpret it now and this is what we're using it for. Uh, and I think it would be beneficial. And like, again, I'm, I'm very fascinated by invasion guys. I, I, I'm well, super you gotta, fascinated. You got to realize too, like most of us anyway, you know, the in Fox company or two, eight during our time that we shared together, we all watched, we were in like high school when this mm-hmm. was going on, we watched this happen on TV. And it's part of the reason that, you know, apart from nine 11, you know, the invasion and everything in Iraq, like we're all watching this while our minds are being made up to actually join. So it's kind of like, that was our, that was a selling point for a lot mm-hmm. of us, like seeing this unfold a lot of our group anyway. Yeah. That's really cool too. Because like, uh, if you think about it, like anybody that signed up like post nine 11 signed up all of them, you know, no matter what rock stars and turds, it doesn't matter. They all signed up knowing they were going to go to war. Like when I signed up, I mean, don't get me, don't get me wrong. I wanted to go to war, but there was no war. You know what I mean? I was just signing up like, Hey, I want to do this. Doopity do. And then nine 11 happens. And it's interesting to think that you have this space between Vietnam and nine 11, where you had like, multiple generations of men that were every bit as professional as you could ever want, but they just didn't have a war. They had Grenada, you know, which, which, I mean, don't get me wrong, guys got killed on Grenada, but Grenada was just like, what, like 48 hours, you know? And it was just very much kind of like episodes of the invasion, which was like Mike Tyson, like beating a guy in a wheelchair, you know? I mean, like total, like totally outclassed, you know, you got like Navy SEALs, like whacking, like rear area, like Cuban reservists, you know, you know what I mean? It, it, it's just not, uh, not, a, not a thing, but, um, but yeah, that's, uh, yeah, I would be happy to, uh, to, to talk about that at your, at your leisure. Uh, and, uh, and, and, and it was interesting too, because things were going on, which I won't get into just because, you know, we can talk about it some other time. Uh, nothing, it's not, not anything controversial, but like things were going on that I didn't understand until I got back. Uh, specifically Mattis firing, uh, and I don't remember his name, he fired the RCT leader. He relieved him of his command during the invasion. Colonel, yeah, yeah. Because because there was a whole thing there where we were moving, 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 and then we just stopped. And everybody's like, what the F is going on? We literally just sat there for days, you know, days after freaking rolling, you know, you know, we we called, LAR, we called it, the invasion was the world's longest drive-by shooting. It was a 600-mile-long drive-by shooting. (laughs) And, uh, (laughs) <laughs> anyway and so and then all of a sudden we're like going balls to the wall again like that right well when i get home that's when i found out all about the drama with with madison and his and his rct commander which he was rolling and Madison was like faster 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 and finally it's like you're fired you're out of here and he sent the guy home you know which we've got has got to let me think about that like you're like a freaking colonel you know you're, you're like a regimental co you know yeah but again that's the that's the harsh the harsh necessities of, of, of war and the situation that, that Mattis was in as a commander, you know, and there's just, but it's just interesting because things are happening to you and you have no idea why you don't understand, you know, and you don't really care up to a point. It's just what's going on. And then, and then when you get back, that's when you find out, Oh shoot, this was happening. That was happening. This was happening. That was happening. Uh, there was like this kind of like, a, and I'll go into it some other time, but, the, the, the CEO for second LAR was really kind of a larger than life 
figure in, in, in good and bad ways. Um, and, uh, but yeah, the only thing I'll say, and I will shut up about the, the invasion until whenever time you, de you determine, was that I've read all of this history, right? And this goes back, actually, this goes back to a couple of points that you brought up. I read all this history and I expected to come in like, this is gonna suck, right? We're gonna fight with one hand tied behind our back. We're gonna have all of this like, can't shoot back club, Beirut 80s type stuff. And I was like, uh, no. Uh, like I was like really like stunned at the level of just freaking, it was just, I'm, I don't know what, to, how to say it. Um, like it was okay to freaking like, like freaking pull the trigger and second LAR. You, you, you know what I'm saying? Um, and, 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 uh, there was just a, just a, a level of, of, uh, of violence that I was very, very, and not, and again, not in a panty in a bunch way. Just as a, as a student of history, I was like, I expected to come here and have one hand tied behind my back and get shot at and have to ask permission. And uh, uh, no, 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 no. You just, you, it was just freaking, like I said, it was a, it was, it was a, uh, it was a very one-sided affair. The second LAR took, um, had one, one KIA in the entire deployment. Uh, and this was a guy that he was, he was in Charlie Company, which had been detached to another combat team. And a track hit a telephone pole that knocked the tension wire down and motor transport was coming through. And this Marine, whose name escapes me, unfortunately, uh, was in the ring mount at the 50s. And he came in contact with the wire and was, was electrocuted. So, so, I mean, which is tragic, but it, he was killed in an accident. And so that was kind of the, the, the weird experience of being in second LAR in 2003, which was like there's an immense amount of destruction and very, very, with very few like casualties. And a lot of that had to do with, with Eddie Ray's, uh, I mean, you know, maybe a little rough around the edges, but uh, his extreme aggression as a commander, as a battalion commander. Um, anyway, but yeah, man, uh, it was a very special time and place as Hunter S. Thompson says. And, uh, and you know, uh, anytime you want to, talk I'll, I'll answer your questions i mean of course i've got my own little narrow window but uh but i remember it all very well because it was a big experience for me you know yeah uh definitely uh, maybe maybe during uh thinking maybe doing it for like an open forum where you have uh you have the audience and then if anyone i know i know a lot of guys would pop in uh, just to reminisce about that time period too there's a lot of guys that aren't aren't on social media that I communicate with that do like strictly email and text that want to participate. They just, again, you know, it's like, um, it's one thing, you know, not to undermine or say anything about it, but it's, it's one thing for, you know, the guys to come together. And then it's another thing whenever leadership, you know, begins to come out forward, then everyone, like it, like when Gunny Grimmett or, you know, First Art Grimmett began to connect with us again. A lot of guys came out of the woodworks and uh, it's been good. He's been doing his thing with his, uh, which I'm always asleep. I go to sleep at eight o'clock, like I'm an old man. And because uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm up at 2 a.m., you know, doing my thing, but it's, it's really, really good. And one thing is, you know, I had a, a background in religious education and many moons ago, I used to teach Sunday school and, um, I would teach high school and college age. 
and I would we teach about sexual purity, you know, and you would try to teach them the way that I would try to teach them is, is that, that sexual purity is like, if you go like head to head with sexual purity and temptation, you're going to lose. The, 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 the key is like to not put yourself in those situations and not get in that headspace. And I'm going somewhere with this. I'm not proselytizing. I'm not trying to be overtly religious. I'm just saying uh, there's a verse in the Sermon on the Mount. So I think it's in Matthew chapter six, where it's like where, where Jesus says that whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart, meaning like the sin is not necessarily the physical act. The sin is the is the is the thought. And, and, it, and it makes sense if you think about it, because your physical activity doesn't matter. It's just going to be an outgrowth of what you're thinking. And you're not going to actually do the bad activity. If you're not thinking about it, if it's not, if, if it's, if it's a moral decision you make internally. So the way where people go wrong, and you, you, I think you're already connecting the dots here, where people go wrong is, you know, like, okay, you're a married guy, you see this girl, she's really good looking, you work with her or whatever, maybe you like have like sexual fantasies or whatever, and then you start like hanging out, and then you start, you know, maybe go out on the slide, go out on a couple of dates, and then finally you get into that situation, where, you know, and like, oh man, I think we can have sex, but I shouldn't do this, you know. And like, well, the odds of you like not having sex are about one, you know, uh, because not only did you put yourself in this situation, you you created this moral framework that allowed the situation. So now I flip it over. And this is the point: is that if you freaking if you freaking fantasize about death and you go out on a couple of dates with death and you freaking screw around with death and you think about death then when you finally go and get into that car or that motel room you're going to consummate that relationship with death you know and the takeaway where i think it can help is for veteran guys to understand that they're just the thought has an immense emotional and moral power. And I've been there. I'm not trying to be melodramatic, uh, you know, but I mean, I've been like all of, everybody's thought about killing themselves, you know. Uh, everybody's like been in like really, really dark places. And you, you know, and you think about it and you talk about it, you know, you kind of go back and forth. That's why when you're talking to a dude that's on the edge and you're trying to talk sense into him and he doesn't listen, you know, and, and the reason he doesn't listen is, he, he's, he's gone down this road and built this for himself. So when I'd say like, hey, well, what about your family? Oh, my family, will be, they'll be better off. They'll be better off without me, you know, all of these different things. And so the, the just so, and, and again, this might work for some guys. Some guys might be like, oh, that's stupid. That's fine, you know, but I hope it can connect with somebody to realize like when you have that very, very first thought way over here about friggin' Like my life sucks, you know, I'm a failure. I'm gonna just freaking eat my gun. I'm done, you know. And what like and you think like, well, how would my mom what would few people think? You know, you start thinking like, what would happen if I killed myself? You know, what would da-da-da-da-da? You know, and then you slowly start to lose the bubble on the reality. Uh, and you know, like like you know, Hemingway killed himself. Well, Hemingway's father killed himself, one of Hemingway's sons killed themselves, two of Hemingway's nieces killed themselves. And that's what you're seeing now is it's a, it's a sickness that's spread through the military community. And when one person does it, it normalizes, it spreads it. And so when you want to go down that road, there's already a little, a little box for you to get into. So that was just a little thing like that. Again, I meant to kind of like, like kind of weave that in and not be like blah there at the end, but it is something, cause I was just like, what's a fresh angle we can come at this from, you know, 
and I think a fresh angle is for people to realize uh, that, that, that 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 the suicidal ideation is a journey. It's not a point. It's not like I'm deciding. You know, by the time you get to that decision, you're mentally ill. Like like you're you're not you're not making decisions, and the fight needs to be way over here, uh, and the therapy needs to be way over here. You know, way to the left. Um, and so so that's it. Uh, you, you know, and I just wanted to throw that out there. I'm, I'm hoping it, it, people can realize the, the, the power of their thoughts and that when they engage in that, that they're actually activating a very, very powerful process that, can, that, uh, that, you, that is totally bigger than you imagine. And that's why it's so critical to control it. Like, no, not right there. Just like, I'm not going to even think about banging that chick. You, you know what I mean? If I never think about banging the chick, I never will do it. And by the same token, when that thought flips in my head, like, man, my life's just freaking shit. I just want to freaking freaking whack myself, you know, like stop, like, and if I never think that I'll never do it, you know? So that's, uh, that, that's all I got to say about that. And, uh, you know, and I, I, I hope that maybe that'll connect with somebody and, and make them think that's all I'm trying to do. No, that's good. So. I, I share with Polly all the time. I come in at through the uh, memetics point of view, right? Uh, we have cultural transmissions, um, suicidal ideations is a contagion it spreads and we know that you know from statistics and everything else that has been aggregated over the, the past 60 years that it affects at least 106 people with an approximation of someone doing it and it has great great impact another aspect that i haven't talked about in terms of just like the science of medics right just the science of how uh units of information propagate uh, and then have impact is um how subculture philosophies that have permeated throughout military history or military societies or war societies are detrimental in the face of transitioning into the civilian sector. Meaning, for example, what 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 does death before dishonor, what that mean, right? What value does that have in a work environment, right? Like me working with school children. And if that's the 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 memeplex, the mind virus flowing in my body. Uh, and everything begins to go to shit, and I start reverting back to my fundamental base uh, programming, which is death before dishonor, then that meme becomes that uh, starting point for that journey that you talk about, right? So you have death before dishonor, death is the only way, um, even even the Marine Corps Rifle Squad, uh, the mission of the Marine Corps Rifle Squad, right? To locate, close, or destroy the enemy by fire maneuver, right? You have all these varying propagate or uh, units of information that end up becoming uh, detrimental to our own self-preservation um, once everything else begins to crumble down because that's what your base programming is and, and how do you override that so I tell Polly all the time and this is going to sound nuts but I there was a period in my life where I went through some serious ideations because things weren't going well and I reverted back to my fundamental uh, base programming and how I got over it was, yes, I did go to therapy, but I was also, you know, doing uh, PT, I was changing my diet. And then I started doing something that I used to do at the barracks where I used to just open the door and yell, fuck, as loud as I could. And every time a negative thought would enter my head, I, I'm, and, and I do it now still, I'm in the bathroom, I'm like, yelling, no. And my wife used to be like, <laughs> she now understands why I'm doing it. And I was like, Every time I have a negative thought in my head, because like you said, words are powerful. And if you want to get into that type of, you know, understand it, look up John Searle's speech acts. And he talks about 
uh, the idea of, of declarations and how it changes the, the literal fabric of reality. Um, meaning that like if you sign a contract for you know a piece of property then these invisible borders go up and you can't cross that because it means life and death right there's all sorts of things but so i changed the fabric of reality and oddly the samurai and if you read hagakure have a, a very same philosophy right when so back then it was um very disrespectful for you to yawn in public so what they, do, yeah, they yeah, used yeah. to do they used to smack their forehead to change your physiology right same concept right I'm yelling no to the negative thought and that's what changes the ideation. So it stops right fucking there. And these are all good tips. And I hope to, you know, write a little bit more about, you know, this um, memetics has kind of taken a, a beating over the past, I, I would say probably since the eighties, just because it's very difficult to create a science of it, but you know, who has created a science out of it, uh, the military industrial complex, not just from the United States point of view, but also our, uh, are uh, other nation states and how they use it to uh, undermine um, various populations like the, 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 the veteran population. So no, that's very on point. Um, and this is why I love philosophy and religion because you have to look at the antiquated past in order to understand uh, kind of the current mechanisms that are taking place and how these things you know, affect us all. So I appreciate you sharing that.